welcome to The 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing very good, Darren. I'm uh, I'm committed to Sparkle Motion. How, how, how are you? I, I never doubted it, Andrew. I never okay. doubted it. Please don't, please don't say those words. Um, but yes, we are continuing our Halloween coverage this week. We are doing, um, last week we talked about Fear.com with the wonderful Jamanda Hagen. This week we're kicking off the double bill of Donnie Darko and S. Darko. And joining us, as always, for our Halloween specials, two fantastic guests. First of all, the fantastic Dr. Bernice Murphy. How are you, Doctor? I am fair to middling. Thank you very much. <laughs> good. It, I like that. It, it means that when you say you're good, yeah. it, it actually counts for something. Anyway, it's from the heart. I, I, and, and we're not even talking about S. Darko this week. And also joining us for this conversation, <laughs> the fantastic Joey Kyo. How are you, Joey? I'm good. I'm good. I just realized me and Bernice both wore red for the occasion. Blood red. <laughs> <laughs> I think Andrew is the only one not wearing red, actually. Oh, yeah, oh he, does red too. Yeah. he does have a little bit of a. And Wednesdays, we wear red. You're so, um, <laughs> Darren and Andy, who a friend of the podcast, Andy Mellowish, and I did a Zoom recently where we were the girls from La La Land. Well, I, I, I think I let the side down because the closest thing I could find to red was a sort of a salmon. <laughs> I love that Andrew talks about this like we, we coordinated this beforehand where it was like look, we're all in the group chat we're saying no. look, we're going to hop on the Zoom um, I, I was, I'm going to be I, the generic blue girl in the background of La La Land you're going to be the generic yellow girl Andrew have you got red Salmon I think I was it. shirtless I, so, <laughs> but just very suntanned yeah yeah the, the, I, that, I feel like that was some sort of a um, an in joke that might have arisen out of um, uh, Whatsapp uh thread but yes anyway Fantastic. We, we don't even have to wait until next week for ha- for halloween it's yes lots of fun for listeners the horror has truly begun here <laughs> it has it has oh, we're talking about uh richard kelly's 2001 slash 2002 uh cult hit donnie darko which is a movie that has a very storied production development history very storied afterlife uh, but i want to ask before we before we kick in there Joey, do you remember the first time that you saw Donnie Darko? I do. Um, like, there's no way I saw it in the cinema, but I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I did. But I, I'm trying to figure out what age I was, and I can't have seen it in the cinema. Like, I feel like I probably watched it at home with my brother, because that's how I watched most movies. But I remember, I do remember crying at the end, though. And when I rewatched it for this, I was like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> like, what, what was wrong with me? It's like the worst cover in the history of the world. And also... I'm sorry, I'll get into this later, but like, um, just don't go in there. <laughs> just go elsewhere in the house. How about that? What's uh, sad? There's nothing sad. <laughs> <laughs> and that's before the movie asked you to look at Patrick Swayze crying. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, just to, to, to put that in context, actually, because it is worth noting that if you're looking at the release date of the movie uh, in terms of America, it was released in America in October uh, 2001. Which may have been one of the reasons why it underperformed, because apparently American audiences might not have been ready for a gigantic plane engine crashing through a domestic environment uh, in October 2001, for whatever reason. Um, mm-hmm. It just wasn't really on anybody's mind. The timeline checks out. It was, it's, mm-hmm. it's like that, um, wasn't there an album by um, The Coup? 
like the the um, which 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 had like a plane crashing into the World Trade Center, um, and it was re- re- released. Um, was it was it before or was it planned? And then they had to pull it or something like that. The the, the um the guy who did um sorry to bother you, a boots um was it is it boots Riley boots Riley, yeah boots Riley. Yeah, yes. I think he had a an an. And an an album that had this kind of eerie similarity, an album cover. Um, I might be wrong. <laughs> Sorry. There's also the Mariah Mariah Carey um, one as well oh, that we've glitter. discussed on the podcast. The famous glitter advertisement in the shadow of the yeah yes. on the World Trade Center, where like when you went to the glitter Wikipedia page for the bones of about twenty years, the under promotional images was a shot of a billboard for glitter with the two World Trade Center towers smoldering in the background. Maybe maybe not ideal promotion uh, for that. Or for this, I mean, like, to be fair, there's a long history of, again, human pattern recognition working the way it does. A uh, lot of eerie coincidences around that. Things like, say, the lone gunman. the ex- Simpsons as well. Yeah, with with that, 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 that episode as well. Uh, things like the lone gunman, which premiered, I think, in March 2001. Its pilot was about a plane being remote piloted into the World Trade Center and a conspiracy theory around that. Uh, there's the... There was a lot of stuff in the ether that kind of in hindsight is, you know, you can see why people who have that mindset kind of come around to it. But the point I was going to make to Joey was it might have been October 2002, which was when it was released in the UK and Ireland, because mm. it was not rushed over here based on its somewhat underwhelming box office performance, where it grossed, I think, somewhere just under half a million dollars in its complete US uh, release, uh, which was not great. But Bernice, what about yourself? Do you remember the first time you saw Donnie Darko? Yeah, um, it would have been, I think, then October 2002. And I saw it at my first ever horror-thon. I know I always go on about horror-thon when I'm here, the Dublin uh, Horror Film Festival. But it was the first time I ever went to. My house burned down two days later during a screening <laughs> screening of Witchfinder General. But unrelated to that, um, the surpri- they always have a surprise film. And, you know... 20 years have been maybe three good surprise films and this is one of the three good surprise films they've ever had no disrespect they're always good fun but like they're generally films that clearly yeah. the distributors are going ah you can have this it'll be like the wretched or something like that you know but it was donnie darko and it went down a storm i remember being quite surprised it didn't do better um uh, you know it just it, it it was um i thought it was sensational at the time and i still think it's sensational um i mean it's you know a hell of a film and a large part of his reputation is arguably based on its UK and Irish release. Like, I mean, Gyllenhaal and Kelly have talked about this, where it's like it was dead in the water in the States. And then it like nobody was in a rush to export it to Britain and Ireland. So it released the following Halloween and it grossed, I believe, as much in, in two weeks in the UK and Ireland as it did in total in the US. And they kind of credit that for giving the movie its second wind for like leading to things like revival screenings uh, in places like New York, Washington, Los Angeles, uh, which then naturally led to things like the director's cut coming out and to things like Richard Kelly somehow being given $18 million to make Southland Tales with The Rock, Justin Timberlake and Sarah Michelle Gellar four years later, which somehow grossed even less money than Donnie Darko. But we're not going to talk about that movie at the moment. But Andrew, what about yourself? Do you remember the first time you saw Donnie Darko? I think I do. Um, and I have a feeling it was in... Well, it, it was it was post-2003 anyway. So I think it was like 2003 or 2004. And I believe it was in the Model Nyland, the black box. Oh, in Sligo. In Sligo. 
where they used to the 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 Sligo Film Society would kind of ha- have these movies kind of one I I don't know was it once a month or once a week I'm guessing it was once a month I think we did, they 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 would do stuff like Dancer in the Dark and um kind of uh, stuff like that that mightn't make its way to the gaiety and I think Donnie Darko was another of them and yeah I, I, I remember loving it I also remember um the, it was a great compliment kid in the year below started calling me Donnie Darko. <laughs> um, there, like part of it is kind of wearing a school uniform, but we we're all wearing a school uniform. I guess it's the way one wears a school uniform and slinks about like the world is about then, maybe. <laughs> did, the, did, the young, did the student in the younger year say, you're weird? You started to walk away and said, it's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly took it as a compliment. Um, j- 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 um, I suppose if there was any ever any time that I was going to look like Jake Gyllenhaal, it was before I became like the crap. <laughs> yeah. Um, who was only nineteen years old when he made this, which is uh, kind of fascinating. yeah, like incredible. He looks so young, so young. Yeah. And people forget he was a child star of sorts, you know, because he became such a big yeah. actor as an adult. He was in lots of stuff as a kid, wasn't he? The Boy in the Bubble and yeah. And then obviously the big one was October Sky, which is a 250 movie that I didn't know existed until I started operating this podcast. <laughs> it's himself and Laura Dern. Apparently. Ooh. Yeah, I, I know. Tell, tell me how that movie just doesn't exist anymore. Um, but yeah, he was he was a kind of a child actor. Uh, and apparently the role was originally meant to be played by Jason Schwartzman from Rushmore, uh, which would have been an interesting kind of thing. He, Rush Schwartzman is one of the three fairy godmothers that this movie kind of had as it went along where he was the one who managed to get, like, when when Kelly wrote this. So Kelly uh, obviously produced short films, went to film school, uh, ended up working in post-production. He describes, like, after making short films, spending two years handing champagne to Madonna, which doesn't sound like the worst job in the world, if you're being entirely honest. But he was like, uh, I figured if I wanted to make movies, I had to write my own movie. And he remembers writing it and showing it to people and everybody being, this is amazing, this is fantastic. And he was like, well, will you give me the money to make it? And then being like, no, 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 we will not give you the money to make this. Uh, particularly in the wake of Columbine, uh, where this has, you know, perhaps we'll talk about it later. This is Columbine-esque vibes in some senses. Um, and very deliberately and very pointedly. And Kelly's talked about how he was kind of in- influenced by that in terms of writing it. Mm-hmm. So it ends up in Schwartzman's lap. Schwartzman is like, actually, yep, this is perfect. This is my perfect post Rushmore kind of project. And he signs on and all of a sudden, you know, financing starts coming together. Other actors start signing on. And then he drops out. And Kelly's like, oh, crap, we've got no way of getting this made. And then the second fairy godmother enters, which is Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore's producing partner gets a hold of the script, really likes it. He goes on set on Charlie's Angels, where coincidentally he meets Cameron Diaz, whose career he will later slightly derail by casting her in the box. Uh, And basically he says, what do you think? She says, I I love it. You know, he's, well, you'd be great as the English teacher. She's like, fantastic. But would you mind if I, my production company produced it? And he was like, sure, I will happily accept all of the money that you're willing to give me to make this movie. And apparently throughout production, Barrymore was incredibly active in getting this film kind of made and through. Um, a lot of people who worked on the soundtrack, so like, for example, uh, In Excess and Tears for Fears, talked about how when they got requests for the soundtrack to provide songs for the soundtrack or to license songs for the soundtrack, uh, they always came with handwritten notes from Drew Barrymore explaining that this was an indie film, so please don't charge an arm and a leg Aww. for the songs that you would normally charge 
an arm and a leg. And the songs that you hear in the movie are the ones that people said, yeah, sure, we'll go along with it. Um, Notably, most of the music in the film were second choices. And we'll talk about maybe some of those when we get into kind of the spoiler zone, which is ironic given I think it has a really iconic kind of soundtrack. Mm. But yeah, Gyllenhaal was was kind of a, a late addition to the movie and kind of signed on and kind of made the character his own in an interesting kind of way. And we'll talk about that. In terms of my own... The character made him as well, I think. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. In that, like, after this, there's a definite kind of vibe to his later work. Like, there's a clear liner from this to Prisoner, say, that there isn't from yeah. uh, October Sky or Bubble Boy in the Bubble or Bubble No, I, I feel like this is the kind of movie, regardless of how successful it was, that would get him notice and people would be like, yeah, yeah that guy, he needs to be in, we need to be in the Jake Gyllenhaal business <laughs> and, and Maggie Gyllenhaal too. Who was apparently cast at his suggestion um, and apparently yeah. very passive aggressively, which I quite like as well, because it was like, I want her to really appreciate that I'm the first one of us to get a leading You're role. Related? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but there are all those Gyllenhaals wandering around Hollywood. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's just so much. Like it's like female a- versions of each other. It's actually quite, it's quite sweet. They look their doubles. Yeah. <laughs> It's like Adam Baldwin and Alec Baldwin, just completely different, coincidental. The surname is more of those Swedes in Hollywood you're always hearing about. <laughs> but um, yeah, but like he, he apparently cast, got her cast in large part because it was like, yeah, I just want her to know that I got a lead role first. Uh, and I just want her to be aware of that every day. Does Does he get a bonus? <laughs> a referral bonus. Like for a referral bonus for that. Does he have to recuse himself from the hiring process? <laughs> How does that I work? thought you were going to say something else there. Uh oh. Okay. What was I? I'm glad you said bonus. <laughs> oh, no. I was like, I was like, what? <laughs> Where is this going? <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> I need to talk quicker. It's a, yeah. It's, <laughs> yes. It's a high school movie. Apparently, this is a high school mentality. But I, I remember <laughs> seeing this myself. Um, seeing it when it came out on DVD. Um, this is a big DVD movie. Yeah. Um, I think that like new new market uh, productions have said that basically like the movie made half a million dollars in cinemas. It made like seven million dollars on DVD, which is impossible to imagine today in the current home media landscape mm-hmm. that well, a movie could I mean, be a blockbuster on home media, basically. Sorry. But that, that, that was that was the story for 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 so many movies of kind of like that time and earlier. It's like like um, yeah, like the Princess Bride, for example, took uh, decades to go into profitability. Yeah, and was only able to do so because of home media. Yes, that sort of thing. What, what, or mall did, rats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like <laughs> Office Space or anything like that. The the um, yeah. Was Matt Damon talking about that recently? Saying kind of that that um... yeah, he was talking about it on Hot Wings. He was talking about how it, yeah. The, the Hot, Hot Wings, which is inexplicably the great like Hollywood inside story of our times. If you want to understand Hollywood production and mechanics, watch Hot Wings or Hot Ones. Well, yeah, well, it's to get people vulnerable, <laughs> like um, you know, to break down the walls between us by making them um, cry and puke, <laughs> and, um, sweat on, on, on webcam. <laughs> yeah. Um, all good interviewers make their subjects sweat. But I, I remember seeing it on, on DVD and I remember seeing it as part of like the old Mooney family movie night kind of ritual. When I was a kid growing up, my parents would watch movies with us every weekend and we kind of, we get to pick them and, and we kind of, you know, watch them. And, and the, to my parents' credit, they're always kind of, 
there was the usual stuff. There was all like the Julia Roberts rom-coms, which are great and all that sort of stuff. There was the war movies for dad and they were also great. But there was like, there was always occasionally like they'd let us watch weird stuff like American History X. Or I think I talked about Fight Club was like a great example of a Mooney family movie night. Uh, American Pie, a very unusual movie to watch with your parents. Um, oh I my God. Um, <laughs> I th- I think during the opening 10 minutes, my mom turned to me and said, from now on, you're washing your own socks. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> all, almost as much of an experience, almost as much of an experience as watching Brokeback Mountain in the cinema with my grandmother and having her lean over to me and whisper, so that's why John Wayne walks like that. Oh. Um, but uh, but yeah, so basically we watched it uh, as, as one of those movie nights, which was great. Um, and I remember my parents being very confused by it. And not really understanding it and kind of almost seeming hostile to the very concept of its existence. But I'll always remember that they seem to recognize that I quite liked it. It's similar to what happened with Fight Club, which was another movie that they did not get and did not care for. Uh, But they seem to recognize that when I was like 12 or whatever age I was at the time, some part of me had kind of like connected to it and kind of was into it and thought it was interesting and i remember getting the dvd from them for christmas so it's a, it's a movie that i have very strong emotional attachments to for that reason i've never unpacked why my parents bought me fight club and donnie darko i don't necessarily want to know why my parents brought me fight club and donnie darko they were but they is. were they, they were expecting the um the moment where darren mooney breaks and <laughs> rebels and hits out uh, which is yet to come. <laughs> it's not not happened yeah, yet. I, I, I do wonder if my parents were like, he could be a bit more rebellious. I think we should be yeah. buying him more angrier young men films. He could do it being a little angrier, perhaps. Exactly. Um, but yeah, that that's kind of like my... Still to come. Still to come. And I, I think like, we'll talk about it later, but I was very trepidatious about covering this movie. I was very like coming back to it as an adult. I think we talked about, like, we talked about Fight Club, we talked about it with Alex Towers, and he talked about how, like, when you're a young man, there are movies that you love very much, and you learn very early on that maybe all of the other people who like those movies are not very pleasant people, and you become a bit anxious about talking how, about how much you like movies like Fight Club or Donnie Darko. Uh, that, and you, that is daft, though, right? Like, as, as in, like, that, it's, it's a, it's a kind of, I, I think it, it's, it, it's a kind of a refusal to, you know, stand on your own two feet or, 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 or to have the courage of one's convictions. Because you're like, oh, it, um, oh, Donnie Darko is really good. Yeah, it's like, what? And it's like, no, I, I mean, it's not really good. <laughs> that, that, um, that's what well, I No, mean. it's more just that you don't talk about it. It's, it's, okay, no, it's, but it's, it's the, more just I, that you... I think okay. people ought to kind of appreciate these movies and 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 like just because kind of a movie gets a reputation it's like we we just kind of like um forsake the movie to its reputation and we say okay terrible people can have this now I'm 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 not, I'm not going uh, near it I I I was surprised by the amount of stuff that it, um well like a certain amount of stuff in this movie and I, I, uh, which, which, which maybe doesn't, um, uh, you know, um, sit very well with me, like today in, in, in the light of 2022, but there's also a lot to, to, to kind of admire and you, and you kind of, you sort of throw, throw away stuff like Fight Club or, um, I don't think anybody throws away Fight Club. I don't think like Fight Club is a poor maligned forgotten movie to be clear. 
But I, I, do, I kind of, I do empathize with Alex when he made that argument about it. it's like you, you interact with people who have strong opinions about Fight Club, and you come away with a distinct impression, and you, you, you don't stop liking Fight Club, but you maybe take a step back and maybe you know just kind of separate yourselves from them. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think probably the best fundamentally there's a certain section of the reading and viewing public that maybe would have benefited from the kind of training you get in a humanities degree where you learn that depiction is not endorsement. Um, you yeah. learn that satire, satire exists and that it's, you know, it can be good to be able to detect it. And, uh, you know, that the term a unique and special snowflake, for instance, which has unfortunately <laughs> entered the popular parlance, I'm sure, to Chuck Palnahuk's absolute horror um, in a way that was not intended has been, you know, it's, yeah, I, I think uh, it reminds me of a lot of stuff that's happening on like book Twitter and book TikTok at the moment where you get people yeah. that, a small proportion of people, but like a discourse that genuinely thinks that if a character does a bad thing, it means that the author is 100% fine. Yeah. You know, we're seeing that in movies what, what, what as well. Dracula or whatever is doing and you're kind of going, oh, geez, you know, it's... <laughs> Just you mean Dracula isn't the hero? His his name's on the title. Dracula is the hero. You just you just need delivery studies. That's all you need. A couple of a couple of hours a week, we'd sort chat. You know, I mean, it's but it is happening in movies as well. Like people are kind of especially because Twitter and social media at large has given everyone a voice. And as Kevin Smith said, everyone's using that voice to bitch about movies. So everyone's just coming back, being like, nah, 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 nah. everyone has to be perfect and good. And if you're not, it means you're not perfect and good. But, yeah, it, but you're nothing right. More, nothing more toxic than the term. I find this character unsympathetic. Well, it's not necessarily meant to be sympathetic, you know. And especially percent of all literature. <laughs> but especially when it comes to women, like how long have we fought mm. to have unsympathetic women, and now we have them, and people are up in arms about it. The, the UK has elected three of them as prime ministers. You know, fair play to them. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> exactly. That's progress. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, By the time this is broadcast, maybe Johnson will be back. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Wasn't that the great argument that was made about like the whole Olivia Wilde uh, "Don't worry, darling" drama? Was that like, look, finally a woman has broken through the glass ceiling of being able to behave like a male director in the seventies? Like, great for her. Um, but I agree with that. I think that like that yeah. that whole thing drives me insane because if she were a man, yeah. we would not care about this. Yeah. Genuinely, this would not be a story. Yeah. And I say that as an entertainment journalist. Like, it, would, it wouldn't even be a conversation with her. You know? There would be no, she wouldn't have to defend herself in an interview saying, no, I wasn't sleeping with him at the same time. Can you imagine a man being asked that? Like, come well, on. It's very, it's very telling that like when that does happen. There was kind of the time's up um, sort of movement. Not, not to like equivocate at all, but the the, the 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 sense of like people saying kind of like, oh, I, it, it wasn't like, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that people people talk about a lot of different things on the spectrum of that, and one of those experiences can be, I I was um I was young, uh, he was in a position of power, um I I um and kind of I I I don't regret the 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 kind of relationship, but I but I um I I I wish I'd been more kind of like worldly or something kind of um when 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 that happened, and I'm not sure I would kind of. Uh, you know, sorry, sorry. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, 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 I kind of, um, uh, it's, it's, it, 
sorry, I, 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 I don't know enough about the Olivia Wilde thing, nor do I really care. And and I, I do think that the obsession with it in the media is is misogynistic. Yeah, it is. But I also think that 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 it's. I, it kind of smells like the 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 kind of right wing thing where they they invert um, uh, uh, left wing kind of tactics. Yeah, yeah. I suppose like like what did I I I feel like there was something similar with um, the James Gunn stuff or whatever. Uh, James Gunn, yeah, you know, where 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 it was sort of like. Um, Oh well, this this is a guy that you all love, but by your own standards, he's he's terrible too. And I'll cancel him. Or I guess I feel sorry for that. I meant even mention the words. Don't worry, darling, on the podcast. I apologize for that. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm 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 sorry. No, I I I, I don't want to be. Kind I'm just of... saying. I'm I'm actually quite looking forward to seeing it because um I was going to talk a wee bit today about the suburbs and the uncanny, and I think Don't Worry, Darling looks like even if it ends up not to be maybe great. For, on its own merits, um, it looks like a really interesting example of the suburban uncanny, you know? So, and, and I guess then that's... that's I linked together Donnie Darko and Don't Worry Darling. Yeah, and nice that's... segue bringing us back in. <laughs> that, that is good. <laughs> that is... Bernice should be hosting. Um, Excellent. But, <laughs> but to bring us back, back to Donnie Darko then, like, so, you know, coming back to it today, and I mean, I guess talking about it in terms of, of you know, Halloween and stuff... Is Donnie Darko a horror movie? Is it a Halloween movie? Is it a good movie to watch and talk about this time of year? Is there any debate over that, I guess, uh, Bernice? Is this a Halloween movie for you? Is this a horror movie? I mean, in that it, it, it has pivotal scenes set in and around Halloween, I guess. I know you guys have a whole set of criteria there. and Andrew has his own particular <laughs> criteria of memory serves <laughs> from, previous, from previous conversations. Um, so I think it probably qualifies on that score. I think it's interesting. I was actually thinking about this today. Um, Would you qualify it as a horror film? I think there is a lot of... Certainly the first time I watched this, I was the whole way through thinking this is a horror film. And yet I suppose I'd call it maybe, if you were going to be really pernickety, maybe call it a hybrid horror science fiction film. I think ultimately it is perhaps maybe very more towards science fiction than horror when you realise it is... Well, can we say what it is? You know, time loops and whatnot. Um, but I think it has a, a really ominous sense of sort of impending dread, which is really splendid. I mean, certainly when I saw this for the first time, I was genuinely convinced that Donnie was going to do something incredibly awful. Um, and, and I had a very different reception of Donnie the second time I saw the film, because the whole way through I kept thinking, you mentioned Columbine, but I was I kept thinking this is not going to end well. And of course it doesn't for Donnie, but in quite a different way. A different you way. Know? Yeah, we, we need to talk about Donnie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it's only published a year. Uh, actually, it's released in two thousand and two as well. We need to talk about Kevin. So, yeah, mm. something percolating kind of through the the unconscious. Not not coincidentally, a couple of years after Columbine. Yeah, like yeah. It, that, that yeah. stuff is very obviously simmering and bubbling. And I think movies ought to be made with these kind of like third rail, sort of. Um, like where where you could kind of look at it and it's like oh it has kind of unfortunate like kind of connections to those sorts of things it's like well no they they could be like intentional and it's important to kind of um uh, the, the, I, I mean sensitivity is um, is all good and well but also like what what does art have to say about these sorts of things i guess is is, is another kind of question 
I mean, like, and to to be clear, like Kelly was aware of this. Like he wrote yeah. this like in two thousand. Um, he sorry, he wrote this and he filmed it in two thousand. He talked about like going to the Sundance Film Festival in like you know, in, in like March or February, kind of two thousand and one. So long before nine eleven, and even there, it was radioactive because of the Columbine stuff. Because you know, spoilers out of context. There's a kid and there's a gun in this movie, and there's you know that sort of stuff happening in there, and all the distributors were like. This is an impressive piece of work. This is one of the hottest tickets at the festival. The critics seem to really love it, but there is no way in hell that we are ever going to release this movie in theaters and put our brand and our name behind it. And that is where the third fairy godmother comes in for Donnie Darko, which is unusually Christopher Nolan, um, because apparently Nolan, who is touring with Memento at the same time, it's at the same film festival. He gets invited to a screening of it and he's like, this is phenomenal. Um, and he's like, New Market, who are distributing Memento, you guys should distribute this as well instead. Uh, no, as well, not not instead. Please distribute this <laughs> instead of my own movie. Um, I'm but, not worthy. Yeah. yeah, I am not worthy. But it's kind of, it's kind of want, interesting. I want them to have the parachute. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> but like, he makes, apparently himself and his wife Emma Thomas only had one note for the movie. And it's it's perhaps the most Nolan note possible. Which is like the movie always had date cards, as we said, it's set during October. It's a very Halloweeny vibe. Nolan's one note was that like underneath those date cards, you should have little brackets that tell you that the, there's a countdown happening. Mm. Because, of course, possibly the most Christopher Nolan note imaginable on your <laughs> script. The audience needs to know that time is moving in a different way while they're watching yeah. this. <laughs> I'm worried that audiences watching this for the first time might think the time is moving linearly. You need to make it clear from the outset that it's not. Um but yeah, okay, so before we jump into the spoiler zone, three questions then to get us started. And I guess, Joey. Yes. Do you think Donnie Darko is one of the greatest 250 movies ever made? No. No, I do not. <laughs> I'm not, I'm sorry. I'm not on the on the Donnie Darko hype train, you guys. I'm so sorry. My husband loves it. It's like the one thing where... It's the one thing he loves that I don't get, whereas he said to me, there's loads of stuff I love that he doesn't get. Like his big example is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. He just hates it, even though he hasn't seen it the whole way through. And if he saw it the whole way through, he would love it. Um, but he knew some annoying people who liked it and they kind of ruined it for him. But this is Donnie Darko's that for me. I'm just like, I don't get it. I Sorry, not that I don't understand it. But I just, I think a lot of it's really self-consciously arty, like all the slow-mo and then the the fast-mo, yeah. the opposite. The ramping. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Exactly. There's the plinky-plonky score. Um, there's all the needle drops. There's when, like, the shot of the of the bus door opening just goes sideways for no reason. Like, so for me, I was just watching it kind of being like, uh so long now that like I said the first the first time I saw it when I was a teenager I was like I was like this is great you didn't accidentally watch the director's cut by any chance no this, I'll tell you? you what I watched okay. I watched my husband's dvd and it is so old that it had that classic anti-piracy ad on it where the man has the big fiery poker and he's like I'm making the pirate d- videos <laughs> so it even predates that you wouldn't oh, yeah. steal a bear oh yes yes okay. earlier than that <laughs> so no I watched a proper DVD of this <laughs> oh. 
Um, and like we, we should we should note by the way that the actual DVD when it was released was one of the first DVDs like like the Matrix. It was very much an immersive experience. Mm. Like again, it's hard to recapture what Donnie Darko was in the early two thousands for the vantage point of like twenty twenty two because it had like an interactive website. Remember the interactive website? Um, oh yeah. And in fact, when Kelly went back to do the director's cut, and we'll maybe talk about the director's cut, in the spoiler zone. Like a large part of the director's cut is just taking stuff from the DVD, all the hidden Easter eggs, and explaining and all these sort of like snippets and just cutting them into the narrative of the movie and making it 20 minutes longer um for better or for worse um maybe maybe <laughs> for worse but bernice what about yourself do you think this is one of the 250 greatest movies well you know uh, i i love it uh, I do. I, it's a film I really adore. Um, and I have really great memories of um, forcing a younger cousin who was, I think, 17 at the time. You have to watch this film when I was a bit older. <laughs> and it blew their mind because I think it's exactly the kind of film. It's like the film equivalent of Stephen King. And there's a moment in it where the mother is reading yes. Yes. reading mm-hmm. Stephen King's it. I think particularly if you're um, of a certain mindset, maybe not so much Joey, we've just learned shockingly but <laughs> i liked it when i was a teenager <laughs> i'm cynical now <laughs> i think i think it just it hit personally speaking it hit me in a particular way i, I mean i saw it in my in my mid-20s but absolutely adore it um and uh i don't know if a long long-winded way of saying i'm not sure i'd put it in the top 200 but i wouldn't have it too far outside it so yeah, I, I think it, I think it's a classic, and I think it's a real shame he hasn't had a chance to do more. Although I have sat through the box, unlike most people, and uh, I can kind of see why they haven't given him a big budget since. But I do think that's a film with some beautiful moments, particularly early on. I think the first, <laughs> I think the first forty-five minutes of the box are kind of brilliant, but then he tries to explain stuff, and that's where it all goes a wee bit wrong. So uh, the problem is once he starts thinking outside the box. How many films have a mystery about Cameron Diaz and her toe? You know, if you've seen the box. But it's nice when you uh, when you revisit a movie and you still love it, like it's still great. I hate when you go back and you think, oh, what was I thinking? This is awful. If you've seen the box. That's... <laughs> the box was never great. <laughs> I, I would argue that like Cameron Diaz has been given other chances to like be in movies since then. And she's not very good in them, right? Ah, she's doing her best, like all of us. Exactly. Yeah, no, no. Well, I mean, Sorry. to be fair, like the like the thing about Kelly, if we're arguing about like Kelly's larger career, actually, Bernice, have you seen Southland Tales, whether the can cut or the regular cut? I have saw the regular cut years ago and I thought it was an incoherent dog's dinner. And then I briefly, because of just uh, self-promotion, I've just published a book called California Gothic, and I'd, orig- I'd originally intended to have Southland Tales in it. And to be honest, I that much else in the book. I genuinely couldn't face going back to Southland Tales. <laughs> so I am a poor researcher, um, but I honestly thought, nope, I can't, I can't do it. It's just, I, I thought it was pretty dreadful. Would it not have been the can cut that you saw? Because isn't that the one that they released in Europe and... Uh, that the no the, the, no 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 the DVD I bought in Yuri that's all I know <laughs> no no the, 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 there, the there, there was cut. a different version um, after Cannes and the reaction it sparked there was there was there was there was an edit yeah release in America but there 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 was a version of the Cannes cut that was released in Europe okay. Just as, as somebody who's done the, the kind of Richard Kelly work here, um, the can cut, yeah, the can cut was unfinished. 
Um, it was in. It was released. It was shown in Cannes exclusively. Twenty minutes were cut out, and that twenty minutes were the, was the version released in the states and in Europe. The Cannes cut was recently remastered and like dragged up from the negatives and restored by Arrow, um, and released on Blu-ray. And we'll maybe talk about that later on when we get to Darren's very dodgy recommendation section at the end of the podcast. <laughs> but but yeah, it was um, it was it was a disaster, and it kind of it took. It took him, what, four years to get a chance to redo Donnie Darko, and it took him, I think, what, 14 years to get to redo Southland Tales. So by that logic, it'll take somewhere in the reach of 24 years before he gets another shot at the box again, uh, to unbox the box. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I do find interesting about Kelly is Kelly's a director where, like, movie stars go to die. Um, Because, like, it's, if you look at his, like, when an actor works with Kelly after Gyllenhaal, they are pretty much done. It's, like, so... The Rock works with him. And after that, The Rock is very candidly like never working with auteurs again. I'm going to work with guys who are going to shoot straight down the middle. Wom Colet Sayer, that dude who directed Skyscraper. Those are going to be the two guys who direct yeah. all of my movies from here on out. It's like I'm, I'm not looking to reinvent myself. <laughs> I want directors who, who know what The Rock is about and want to put me in that hole where you keep pigeons. Um, I was going to say his trajectory potentially reminds me a little bit of is it is it David Robert Mitchell who did It Follows yes it followed Krishna. by the Silver Lake uh, Silver, sorry Silver Lake oh no Trish, Krishna was Tree Edward Schultz wasn't it yes that was but uh, Silver Lake was considered quite divisive and I believe comparisons were actually made when it was shown at Cannes to Southland Tales and that but more so that people either adored it or thought it was the most pretentious load of nonsense they'd ever seen um, but I remember, I think I remember Kelly being evoked as a kind of a cautionary tale, which I think is quite sad, you know? Because I think Kelly's, Kelly is interesting because he kind of emerges. We're like, we're talking about him. We talked about Requiem for a Dream a couple of weeks ago. And I think you could argue Aronofsky's another one of these. Nolan's another one of these. Like, you could argue these directors who kind of emerged in 2001, 2000-ish, kind of like influenced by 70s cinema, going off doing their own things. And obviously Nolan goes off and becomes like the big blockbuster guy. Aronofsky gets to become like the weird director of biblical movies in America, <laughs> the most biblical director in American cinema at the moment. And Kelly just kind of drops off the radar because he can't seem to make it work. Um, and I do find that kind of kind of a bit sad, to be honest. But sorry, Andrew, do you think Donnie Darko is one of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Where where would I put it on the line? Um, <laughs> yeah, come up to the blackboard, yeah. Fear, yeah. I, 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 I think it's more complicated than that. It's, things are nuanced, Darren. Um, I... Andrew, are you about to tell me to forcibly <laughs> insist the list into my anus? Um, then we have to do the podcast each week from... from, from sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I don't. I like it. I, li- I like it a lot. But um, it's, um, it's a bit niche and it's not... There are, there are kind of problems with it, I guess. I feel like if it weren't on the list, I, I don't think there would be that many people thinking, like, why isn't it on the list? It's so obvious that it should be on the list. Um, so I'm going to... I'm going well, to it s- only re-entered as part of the, the reshuffle back in, in March, the one that we covered when we talked about, was it uh, Come and See? The one that got Jaws back on the list, the one that made the list a bit more English-centric. 
because uh, it had, like kind of dropped off the list, I think, back in 2019 mm. and then just kind of resurged back in February. So it's, it's one of those it's a beneficiary of the weird uh, Bollywood purge that kind of took place earlier this year, to be fair, to put it in context. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, yeah, it's 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 one of these. Um, it comes into the list from some kind of candidate universe. <laughs> um, from the tangent universe yes the tangent universe yeah yeah exactly but yeah no no more tangents <laughs> uh no I, I i i i don't think i'd put it on 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 the list feels like the argument for having it on is maybe not that that, that strong i feel like it had a cultural impact but that it's it's uh certainly not like outsized or Anything like that. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I think, like, when we do this, I normally procrastinate and I say, like, is there stuff on the list that does it better? Are there movies that should be on the list instead of this? And generally speaking, I think there are enough movies from this era, from those kind of directors on here. I think Memento's on there. Requiem for a Dream is on there. And I think those are both better examples of, like, you know, early 2000s indie auteur movies um, that are kind of conceptual and kind of, like, borrowing this stuff. I think if you're going to have, like, a weird, mind-bendy 2001 movie on here, like, the fact that Mulholland Drive isn't on the 250. What? Um, is, yep. David Lynch's Mulholland Drive isn't on there. That's maybe it's con- even more, though, kind of um, uh, niche, you know. Not, not, okay. I, I suppose you can you can have your, like, own list, which is kind of, which is Mulholland Holland Drive and whatever else, but could could it be D list? I don't, but I mean, I, I would more argue that like Mulholland Drive being named like the greatest movie of the century mm. by you know Sight and Sound and and kind of the Guardian, the BFI, all those sorts of places mm. maybe makes an argument for it as the mind bendy movie of this particular era. Right. If you're going to pick a movie from this era that's representative of movies that are kind of mind bendy, abstract, end of history, pre nine eleven, post nineties, existential anxiety sort of nonsense, which is a very specific genre. I, I kind of. <laughs> realize sex is a very niche genre uh but if you're gonna pick from that pool i think that like mulholland drive is the clear winner and donnie darko is maybe second so bernice appears to be running through that genre in her head wondering um, yeah i was trying to think of is there another major one uh that i that i can't think of and there there isn't really i think you're right you 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 would have to place mulholland drive above donnie darko um you know that's it's a masterpiece, um, you know. Yeah. Um, whereas I, I, yeah. I wouldn't quite say that it may be about Donnie Darko. I think an incredibly promising debut. Um, it apes Mulholland Drive right at the beginning too. Mm. Well, I don't know if it apes because they would have come out simultaneously, but it does. It has a very similar vibe, and it like again. I suppose, yeah, it echoes. Yeah, sorry. That's me looking at it with twenty twenty two eyes, <laughs> and perhaps less Donnie Darko friendly eyes as well. Yeah, I would. I would agree that it's a better movie than Donnie Darko. And but and and if you if you were going to have one of them to have that, but I I just don't know if 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 if, if either of them would uh, um, kind of. Okay, get... I was trying to be friendly and trying to construct an argument that might benefit Donnie Darko, and the right. problem is that when you do that, you and there's never a position where you're like, okay, Donnie Darko is the right choice and Mulholland Drive is the wrong choice. Um, is is the argument that I was making? Yeah, but... no, I know I'd agree with that. I w- I would say like if if. If you're going to make an argument for this, you make a stronger argument for Mulholland and Drive. And I suspect Lynch may be something we come back to, because I think, like, Bernice, you've written about the suburban American Gothic. There are definite kind of Lynchian... A little bit about Mulholland Drive in my new book, yeah. California Gothic. 
No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> in, in no good bookshops because it's really expensive. <laughs> um, Hashtag uh, academic publishing. Sorry. <laughs> Go for it. Um, but Joey, I think we already know the answer to this. I worry this is strictly a pro forma question. Is Donnie Darko on your own personal 250, your own 250 favorite movies? I'm sure it was when I was a teenager, for sure. There was definitely a time when I loved it. But now, no. Was this the first time you revisited it since being a teenager? Or you kind of, were, you, were you aware going into this conversation that you were going to kind of have this reaction to it? Or was this kind of like an eye-opening, what was I thinking as a teenager moment? Um, I kind of had a feeling just because, for me, Donnie Darko is a real boys film. And in the years since I watched it for the first time, and I did watch it quite a few times as a teenager, definitely, that's made me feel kind of, I don't know, it's kind of made me turn against it in a way because similar to Fight Club, there's such a swell of support for it that it makes me kind of annoying <laughs> um, because, you know, when you're growing up and, and all the movies are for men and you think, oh, this one's for me. And then it's like, no, it's not. And then rewatching it now, I'm like, wow, the women really don't get much to do. You know, like even his girlfriend, you kind of have like that one little aside about her parents and then that's it. We learned nothing else about her. So, but yeah, I think it, it, I think there was definitely a time when I absolutely, it was one of my favorite films. Definitely. And Bernice, what about yourself? Would it be on your own personal 250, your own 250 favorite? Yeah, I think it would. And uh, one of the reasons as well, I'm sure we'll get to this as well, is that um, I'd for, I keep forgetting until I watch it again, how funny it is. Um you know how warm the family relationships are i think that the casting is absolutely incredible um the exchanges between the parents i think are particularly good i think it's quite rare in a film like this that's sort of focused on a teenage protagonist protagonist that the parents are drawn with a degree of empathy and humor and wit that donnie's parents are and uh, yeah so i i would absolutely i think i think the world building in the film is really good the supporting cast are uh, are, are just really wonderful and um yeah so absolutely i don't know how highly it would be placed but maybe even in my personal top 100 i would say and and again yeah so so andrew what about yourself would it be on your own personal 250 your own 250 favorite movies i mean it might yeah um i really enjoyed it i i agree with bernie's i i i, I thought it was very funny um i i i I think the acting is fantastic. Um, sorry, no, I, I am just kind of saying a lot of it. But, uh, the, the, and I, I, I think um, it, it's, um, it probably didn't, pathos didn't really kind of um, get me. I kind of agree with, with, with Joy that the, because um, you watch some movies and you know they're going to be sad and you know the point that it's going to be sad. And you think like, I'm prepared for this. It's not going to do it to me again. And then it does. But um, I remember you talking about like Requiem for a Dream. Like editing <laughs> Requiem for a Dream was an experience because it was just Andrew going, and I thought I was prepared for it. And I thought I could make fun of it. And I thought I could laugh through how absurd it was. But it just kept going. <laughs> but it was the same with Up. Like, because you, you <laughs> like, there's no secret about Up, like. And, and, and yeah everybody knows going into that what it is yeah 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 what the and, opening is and you're just <laughs> and it just kind of and I, I talked about that while we did up but with the, with this um i don't know if it's um if i cried kind of like watching it i suspect i didn't but i i, I certainly didn't um uh, this time around and that's maybe a failing of it um although it, you 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 could argue that uh, that 
that the piece of music kind of works for a lot of people. It's uh, it, it was maybe it was Christmas number one in 2003 in the UK. Yeah. Gary Jewell's Strange World, Strange Mad World. Sorry. Maybe that's why it doesn't kind of affect people as much because per, perhaps it was overplayed and, and that it's lost kind of um, some of the uh, power um, that it might have had for some people at the time. And I, 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 I think I think I might put this on my list because I think it's interesting in terms of like it's the theme and the plot, which I think are very much kind of related. You know what what um, what happens in the movie is is is, is kind what of difficult to separate from what it's about. Yeah, yeah I, I can see that, and I think it again. I kind of mentioned I teased earlier on. I was kind of anxious about coming back to this after all those years because I was kind of those movies that you love as a teenager and you're kind of worried about being almost embarrassed by about them when you come back as a grown up. Um, so I hadn't seen this in in well over a decade, maybe a decade and a half. And I, re- I was surprised at how much I was kind of moved by it. And I think I think Joey's entirely correct to say that there are a lot of movies about boys coming of age and there are lots of movies about boys growing up and there's, you know, far, far too many. And there's, you know, they tend to dominate the conversation. I think all of that is perfectly fair. Um, but I did kind of watching this, I was kind of struck by how this this felt oddly like a male version of something like Carrie where it's about like what puberty is for a boy and about how that's confusing and how emotions and impulses get all tangled up inside themselves and how you end up with these weird outlets for these things that you don't necessarily understand within you. Uh, And I found that kind of like strangely affecting in in a movie that we don't normally see in treatments of like male puberty, because like male coming of age is something like, say, Stand By Me, which is a a rollicking adventure or E.T. or whatever, which are all these kind of like wholesome Americana kind of things about wasn't childhood fantastic? And didn't you have that one great adventure where you saw a dead body or you you did (laughs) something with a creepy (laughs) alien? Um, (laughs) Oh, that... I, I I I was like I'm I'm just gonna kind of look past that when when Aaron I should uh, stand by me as kind of you know a rollicking adventure a wholesome kind of but it kind like it it, it it presents it as this kind of like all American there's nothing more heartwarming than like when <laughs> poking a dead body with a stick it makes you feel so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say sorry because I give uh, a whole. I'm giving a lecture next week on the witch, and I'm talking about teenage witches and their history. And I I talk about this long-standing idea in sort of horror criticism that you know uh, exactly that point that um, within American cinema, in particular American genre cinema, puberty for boys is sort of like a building's Roman and kind of an adventure. And for girls, it's always a, if it's depicted on screen, particularly if you get the reality of say menstruation, etc. It's invariably depicted as this transformative in a horrific way experience where you get psychic powers that kill everybody or you get a vagina dentata as in the film Teeth or you get bitten by a werewolf on the uh, the day you get your first period on your 16th birthday as in Ginger Snaps. You know, I could go on. Don't stop or stop me or I will. Uh, Whereas the only example I can think of really where it's maybe within superhero films like um, Spider-Man where puberty, obviously, but in a very positive way, you become a hero. Um, but one of the few films I can think of that has male puberty being kind of transformative and destructive in a similar way is, I think, uh, the often maligned Josh Trank and his son, oh, yes. which I think is a great example of, you know, a high school film that's also, you know, you, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but um, a really good film, actually. 
that that is one of the very few American films that ha does that same kind of body horror thing to boys that is always done to girls. And I think in a ultimately in quite a quite a cliched way at times, you know, even though some of the films I mentioned, a lot of them are great. Uh, Ring, uh, Sadako Yamamura is another great example of that. Um, women have bodies that are scary and destroy stuff, uh, basically. There ends my lecture. <laughs> No, no, no. It's a, it's a very good it's a very good point. But like that that is kind of something that took me watching Donnie Darko is that like it's the rare like puberty as a horror movie for boys where it's like Donnie has these feelings and things inside himself that he doesn't understand. And they express themselves in parallel through mm. like sexual impulses that he can't control and violence like the like, you know, not to get too spoilery, but he's talking about like the famous Smurfette sequence, which, by the way, I love Richard Kelly got the approval of the is it the Pierre estate um, because like like Donnie's answer or lecture in that is technically and factually correct. <laughs> so the creator of the Smurfs signed off on it. And he's like, yeah, you understand your Smurfs lore. You know what you're doing. You're clearly being respectful to the mythos. But while Donnie's doing that, he's firing like a little pellet gun, a BB gun, uh, which again kind of sets up everything that kind of happens later on. I, I don't know. I, mm. I kind of found myself responding to that in a way that was kind of interesting because it's like, yeah, I remember being a teenage boy and, you know, not in like a grr, Joker-esque kind of way, but in like a, I remember being very confused about how I felt. And I remember not thinking that everything was going to be okay. And I remember thinking that everything was the end of the world. And like Donnie Darko kind of taps into that. And coming back to it as an adult, I found it kind of deeply moving because like you watch it, you watch it as a child and you sympathize with Donnie. You watch it as an adult and you sympathize with all the adults in the movie or most of the adults in the movie who have no idea what's going on and how to help this poor kid mm. um, who's clearly going through something deeply troubling. And they're all trying, but none of them are able to get through for whatever number of reasons. I found it, I found it kind of funny and I found it kind of sad. It's interesting. actually. They, they, yeah. Cause it, it, it speaks to a lot of the kind of alienation and isolation of being um a, a teenager or even if I think of being a child and not, not kind of having a, you know being made to feel weird and although there are kind of male stories of that they, they aren't often situated in in um, uh, uh, puberty like 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 you have stuff like 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 metamorphosis um, and then the fly um, I guess be, be be being examples where it feels like they ought to be kind of um, teenage stories, puberty but it's, coming of age stuff like your body is changing. Yeah, but it, but it's a salesman and a scientist, um, like it, respectively in 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 Kafka's version and in in, in Cronenberg's. Yeah, it did but the, but that they aren't um, literally uh, puberty stories. Um. Yeah, and, and kind of just generally as well, I think it, it taps into a bunch of nonsense that I really like, which is that kind of like turn of the millennium, end of the 90s, end of history sort of stuff that Darren's like, yeah, give it to me, baby. Because um, it's like, uh -huh, it's literally uh -huh. a movie about like American... <laughs> this is a time American of offspring. 
Yeah. Yes. Uh, but it's it's like it's 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 literally like again American suburbia. This existential like is history even moving forward? What happens next? What's the point of all this? At the end of the Cold War, and then bam, smash! A plane crashes into a building. Everything changes, and the world is ended. And it's like this feels like a movie that taps into something that even it doesn't understand or couldn't possibly have been aware of. And if you were to take a snapshot of a moment in history, I think that it's a good one on those terms. So I think it might sneak into my 250, maybe, maybe near the bottom. But Joey, if listeners have not seen Donnie Darko, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? I'm sure anyone listening probably has seen it because it was such a huge deal. But if people haven't seen it yet, definitely check it out. Absolutely. Because it's still an interesting movie. Uh, And Bernice, what about yourself? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, um, I was pleasantly surprised to see that it's streaming on the horror app Shudder right now. So if your listeners have that, um, you can get it here in Ireland. If you already have Shudder, you can watch it. Well, not for free because you'd be paying a, a small subscription. But yeah, it's, it's tiny. Shudder, if you're listening, I'm open to sponsorship. But <laughs> <laughs> Me too, me too. <laughs> so me and Joey were open for offers, definitely. <laughs> I do feel like next year I should try and get this section of the podcast sponsored by Shudder it's um, such a good deal though it's a fiver less than well a little less than a fiver it it's hasn't brilliant. gone up and there's always at least three or four things a month I want to watch which I think my god you don't get those odds on yeah. Netflix Jesus <laughs> no my list yeah. never goes down like I'll never get through my list it just keeps building up and up and up yeah. and and again like and it also has like not only does it have new stuff it has original programming which is is fantastic Darren says like rehearsing his sponsor pitch for Shutter apparently that's not all you can, <laughs> you can cancel it any time as well it's <laughs> but all, it, it has like its own stuff so it has like is it everything for jackson uh the watcher uh glorious all these shutter originals that are on there it also has like a really good archive they had like the 4k remastered roger yeah. corman mask of the red death on there like which is just like fantastic and a great way to watch this and as you said they had this uh bernice have you seen the director's cut of donnie darko out of curiosity you know i was trying to remember this darren and i i don't think i have if i if i had seen it it would have been in the i suppose in the early 2000s so if i have seen it i've blocked it out but i'd kind of read enough of it that that sort of you know reviews that had said that it if anything detracted from the film and i was so fond of the original film and i i just you know i purposely didn't seek it out to be honest i i i yeah i I, from what i i heard about it maybe i'm wrong i'm happy to be corrected but um it seemed to me that it maybe indulged some of the film's weaker impulses at the expense of the of the of the of the, orig- of the released originally released version, I should say. Yeah, I mean, like it's this is going to sound like I am damning it with mm-hmm. with the cruelest of all uh, praise, but it feels much more like a transitional film between Southland Tales, like Donnie Darko to Donnie Darko, the director's cut to Southland Tales is a very clear progression that you can track across the three films um, in terms of visual style and in terms of storytelling, um, which is maybe all that needs to be said about that. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to it in a moment. Um, Andrew, what about yourself? If listeners have not seen Donnie Darko, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Yeah, I I would. um, It's a matter of taste, but I, 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 um, I responded differently to how Joey did. I, I I enjoyed the music, even though that's it's not my thing. I felt it it fit very well with the movie, and I like even the shot of the kind of the, the bus um, opening. I I think the rest of the shot after that I didn't enjoy as much, but but that kind of particular sort of 
even 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 if it might be like a little bit hackneyed i i i thought it was kind of well done or 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 like um and most of the movie i think is 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 just very well done um and and i'd absolutely recommend it i i think i think if 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 you haven't seen it or if you have seen it and you didn't like it like there 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 are options of how you might respond to this because there are the people who 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 liked it a lot who maybe shouldn't watch it again in case it ruins it for them but then there's also the people who 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 didn't like it at the time or found it boring like i was watching with patrina and she found herself enjoying it um uh, much more than she thought she would she was she was kind of saying oh this is actually quite well made um like um and what was it wasn't nearly as bored with it kind of this time around so i i, I would recommend it's it's worth noting that like when he made this kelly was only 25 years old um which mm. is kind of terrifying to think about in terms of like just assuredness um part of what he did was that he hired um, he hired a bunch of very talented individuals on there, uh, most obviously like Stephen Poster as cinematographer, who worked on kind of like Second Unit, I think, on like Those Encounters of the Third Kind and like a couple of Ridley Scott films as well. And apparently like obviously trusting those people to, to kind of like to guide him. So, for example, like to bring together two things that I think Joey and Andrew have talked about there, like the stylistic choices and the soundtrack there's a sequence in here that is like a sequence in a school and it features like the the tilting store the speed ramping up and down which i think joey mentioned that she didn't like um and obviously it has like head over heels playing in the background um that shot like he'd originally envisaged that as a single tracking shot but apparently poster quite literally just said to him I've done the timing on this. There's no way that you can get it to fit the song that you want to play over it. You're going to have to do it as five separate shots and you're going to have to speed up and slow down. And so he literally went through it with a stopwatch. And he's like, you're right. So that's why that sequence accelerates and slows down as it's going, because um, he has to fit it to the music that he's playing because he kind of envisaged that music in the background. And I mean, not to step on the discussion that we are going to have next week, because I'm worried we're not going to have anything to talk about next week anyway. (laughs) But like one of the early things that like, one of the early things that Kelly decided about this movie uh, was that he wanted to shoot an anamorphic widescreen, despite the fact that it would be more expensive uh, and it would take longer and it would be harder to light. Um, And apparently he said, well, look, the reason for that is you look at, say, John Carpenter and Carpenter's talked about this. Carpenter's like, my movies are dirt cheap. I never got a budget that I wanted for my movies. I budgeted them at 20 million and they gave me 10. The reason that my movies look good is because from the outset, I decided I want to shoot them in anamorphic widescreen. Because when audience see anamorphic widescreen, they subconsciously associate it with movies that look expensive. Uh, And you have to light it very carefully so it looks more constructed and it looks like a lot more care goes into it. And again, if you pick a random other movie, like say S. Darko, for example, you can very evidently tell the difference that something like shooting an anamorphic widescreen makes to a production. Um, But again, like everyone was like, yeah, this was kind of amazing that this 25-year-old director was like, no, I want to shoot it in... I want to shoot my first movie in this expensive, difficult, time-consuming format uh, because I don't want later in my career to look back and go, I'm embarrassed that this is the only one I didn't shoot. I don't want to be like Carpenter with, I think, Dark Star, where Carpenter's like, Dark Star doesn't count as my first movie because it wasn't shot in anamorphic widescreen, so I don't count it. Mm. Also, his last movie, The Ward, I think, is also not shot in anamorphic either. Ward, yeah, that's that's a handy get out of jail free card for getting yourself <laughs> off the hook for directing the ward. It wasn't an anamorphic; it doesn't count. Um, and 
for myself, I would wholeheartedly recommend this. Um, in terms of the director's cut, watch the theatrical cut first, and if you like it, maybe try the director's cut. There is some good stuff in there in terms of character. There's more stuff for Barrymore. There's more stuff for the parents. Unfortunately, there's a lot more of Kelly explaining the world in a way that undermines the ambiguity that is the central appeal of the film for a lot of people. But if you can look past that, I think there's some really nice character beats in there that aren't in the theatrical cut. But yes, if you are going to watch it just once, watch the theatrical cut. With that in mind, we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone! So, Bernice, what is Donnie Darko about for you? Well, I guess on one level you could say, like, you know, like that famous Onion headline about the Titanic ship hit by world's biggest metaphor. Um, (laughs) 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 I think in some respects, as you said, uh, Donnie Darko, you know, jet engine hits American suburban house um, there is that tremendous sense, I think, a very zeitgeisty sense of an era ending and a very uncertain era following. Um, I would say, I mean, I think there's a lot going on there. I think one of the things we haven't really touched on that I think is an important theme in the film is that I think you can see this as a really poignant film about mental illness and about mm. about a young a young man struggling with 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 psychological um, instability. And his, I think it's really important that his parents are so obviously quite concerned about him in a very benevolent kind of supportive way are trying to do their best as we've already touched upon so i think you could see this as a not just a, an eruption of chaos and a kind of a and disorder in a kind of a cosmic sense which obviously is going on there but also a family trying to cope an otherwise very comfortable materialistically settled happy family in a seemingly idyllic place struggling with uh, you know an upheaval of their own a very personal kind of upheaval and, and donnie himself um simultaneously being at times very articulate and yet in a very teenage way not being able to articulate what he's going through for very understandable reasons. So yeah, I think there's a lot going on there, but I do think that that's one of the most poignant and and arguably, I think, successful aspects of the film. Whatever you might think of the sci-fi trappings, I I think it's a a tremendous film about, you know, teenage uncertainty and angst and and about mental illness, actually, as well. And Bernice, not to distract from your latest book, which I believe is the California Gothic and is available from all good booksellers at the moment. <laughs> um, but I believe you have an earlier book as well. Like uh, one, the, one, one of the reasons that I first became aware of you is you're, you're writing about the suburban Gothic in American life. And I mean, how does Donnie Darko fit in that sense? Because I mean, Kelly's films keep coming back to suburbia. The opening sequence in, say, uh, Southland Tales, the masterpiece that is, is the shot of a nuclear bomb detonating in suburbia. In the box, you have this idea of a travel... Again, from from Kelly's own childhood. Like, the box is loosely based on his own parents, where his mother uh, lost her toes because somebody left her in an x-ray machine too long, for example. His father um, was one of the guys who developed the camera on the Viking uh, probe to Mars and those are all elements that he folds into the box they're taken from his own childhood and he's talking about how that is like about how salesmen traveling salesmen in the 70s would prey on lonely suburban housewives and get them to do terrible terrible things except this time it's a button that kills a random stranger instead of like a box of Tupperware I guess but like how how would you situate like Donnie Darko or even Kelly's larger milieu in terms of the suburban Gothic? I think, I think um, Donnie Darko very much fits into that sort of classic suburban Gothic situation. You mentioned the box based of, on a short story by Richard Matheson called the box. Um, and uh, Matheson himself, one of the pioneers of the suburban Gothic with I am legend, which is the story of an ordinary suburban man 
whose house is then in, or neighborhood is then invaded by plague survivors who have become vampires. So what you tend to get in the suburban Gothic is essentially it's kind of a metaphor in a lot of ways for like the supposedly idyllic, uh, progressive, settled, post cozy post-war consensus, this cozy post-war domesticity that is violently disrupted generally by forces from within rather than from without. So Donnie Darker is interesting in that arguably we have both going on at the same time. Um, but um, I think I think it, it, it's quite conscious of that kind of tradition that it's in, particularly, I think, of the early 1980s suburban Gothic. I'm thinking of the likes of Poltergeist, which is another Southern Californian film about a seemingly settled family, except instead of trouble coming from above, trouble comes from below. Uh, in Poltergeist, because of course it's built on a burial ground and it all, you know, hits the fan as all, often happens. Quite literally, actually, nearly in Poltergeist, there's a, a lot of sewage in it. Um, or the likes of E.T. even, which is another wonderful... And, and a touchstone here as well, like the sequence of the kids cycling is lifted directly from E.T. and Drew Barrymore's casting as well, yeah. Sorry. Mm. Uh, well, absolutely, you've got Gertie from E.T. herself all grown up in it, so I think you absolutely have... Uh, Kelly himself obviously has that self-consciousness of that... Um, of that classic suburban gothic kind of milieu. And, you know, that idea of, I mean, even the opening sequence, I was thinking of um, Donnie Darko, like waking up in the middle of the road. That reminded me of, there's a wonderful photographer called Gregory Crudson. And if you've ever, anyone's ever seen It Follows, which is one of the best modern suburban gothic films, a lot of his most, um, of the, of the most eerie images of like suburban disruption in um, It Follows are actually inspired by the photographs of Gregory Crudson. And that image of Donnie Darko lying in the middle of the road or in the middle of the golf course, but no sort of, you know, plausible reason to be there. That's such a Gregory Crudson style image. Um, so I think it absolutely um, falls into that tradition, but also mixes together, as you said earlier, Darren, that kind of um, long 1990s sense that, you know, we're entering into a new era here, but it might necessarily be a good one, <laughs> you know, unfortunately. I think time has proven that it, but it it hasn't turned out as great as we would have liked. So I'm sure America will be fine. Anyway, <laughs> if on a long enough curve, it'll um, work out in the end. Did anyone else find metaphysical strains in the movie? They they were 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 quite strong. Like I'd almost hesitate to call this science fiction because it feels more um, mystical. I feel like this is a film about um uh, god yes. and uh fate and 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 destiny and that the the that the the world will end because the, the, the kind of gods has created and kind of sustained the world and when when the plan kind of departs from i guess um god's vision of of the world it it ceases kind of being that world that god sustains the world and 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 ends i guess we we kind of talked about this a little bit when we talked about like requiem for a dream with aronofsky and it's also there i think in memento with nolan where you have this weird thing at the turn of the millennium where you have like kind of almost secular agnostic kind of religious films where like in memento there's this question of like trying to impose a meaning on the world without god being there and the question of like does the world beyond your own experience actually exist is, is reality objectively real in requiem for a dream we talked about like you know aronofsky's recurring fixation on the idea of what a world with or without god looks like and here 
like it's it's very explicit that like Donnie is a kind of a Christ-like figure. He goes up on a mountain. He looks over the horizon. You have, you know, you've got that like 28 kind of day kind of period. You've got the idea of things like the last temptation of Christ is playing at the matinee. Um, I mentioned the director's cut and I mentioned that like ignoring all the time travel stuff that's in there and the bit where it shows you text from the philosophy of time travel. You have things like, for example, um, discussions where, you know, his psychiatrist labels him an agnostic. They have extended conversations that I think are, some of them are present in the theatrical cut as well, but like where it's like, do you believe? And everybody dies alone. And what does it mean to be God? And here you have the conversation with like, where he's talking to Noah Weil and he's like, you know, what would it mean if we were in God's channel? Like, what would it be to be God and to understand the universe? Because that's that's the big thing with the movie and arguably with Kelly's filmography as a whole, because, of course, I went and watched all of <laughs> Kelly's films for this, um, like the sadist that I am. But, like, <laughs> Kelly's fascinated by contradictions and metaphysics. And so, like, this is a spoiler zone for all movies, right? So in the box, the climax of the box hinges on... The question which is left unresolved in the narrative um, and unresolvable within the narrative, which is the question of does somebody pushing the button cause the next person to fire the gun or does the person firing the gun cause the previous person to push the button? How can those two events be causally linked uh, given that they're both choices that the individual actors make out of free will, but seemingly make simultaneously in the same second or millisecond. And the movie doesn't bother to explain how that is physically or, you know, possible, um, but it just takes for granted that it is. And Kelly's kind of talked about how for him, like his movies are about searching for God in science. And like, that's the thing that I find interesting about this movie and again it's it's that whole end of history thing the thing the kind of like the end of an era thing that bernice mentioned like this is set and sorry darren's gonna go off on one (laughs) it's set at the end of the cold war and it takes place right before the war on terror begins it's that interregnum of history it's that point where you know you can literally say that history's ended but you have this breakdown of boundaries throughout like donnie's big speech the the one that andrew alluded to earlier the moment where it's like the line between fear and love and he's like you can't break things down Mm. and divide them into a single linear boundary you have the election taking place in the background the first line spoken in the movie is i'm going to vote for dukat and then um, you have Steve, Steve why? Sisters, um, um, why? How does one suck a fly? I think is the, the you know I mean you've got sucking and fucking, and they're two. How does one do cock? They're they're two different things that cannot exist simultaneously. But even even more seriously, you have things like the paradox of like the extremely religious teacher who's also heavily sexualizing the children, mm. um, and the idea that she's worried about corrupting the children by making them read like. Graham Green and Watership Down, and in reality, she's having them parade like Little Miss Sunshine. You have the like the idea that Donnie's two teachers who are Sorry, I don't, whether I have they're to married stop you. or whether are you, are you dissing Sparkle Motion? I am dissing Sparkle Motion. Apologies, <laughs> I'm de- I'm, I, I gave you calls to doubt my commitment to Sparkle Motion. <laughs> you, you have like his his two teachers played by Drew Barrymore and Noah Weil, and they're like he's a science teacher, she's an English teacher, but they exist together. And you have this idea in Kelly's work, which I find interesting, which is that there is not a binary between 
like science and faith, between science and mysticism, no. between a scientific understanding of the universe and a religious understanding of the universe. And that really they're not necessarily two sides of the same coin, but they're kind of interacting with one another because like it, Kelly works really hard and it's it's maybe to his fault in like this and Southland Tales and the box to explain the science of what is happening. And it makes no sense whatsoever. Mm. Um, but well, I, he also makes, he also takes care to explain that there has to be an outside actor in all of those circumstances that is presumably God, which I find interesting. Yeah, I, I think saying science is maybe misleading. I think it's kind of philosophy of religion. Like that this movie and the um the the unapproved sequel well you have the line from 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 elizabeth where she's like what does philosophy have to do with time travel like again that's that's the same thing where it's like how do the two fit together yeah the the, the, the this movie and the unapproved sequel as darko are both about kind of the problem of evil ultimately and that that is it's trying to to posit that when bad things happen that is part of some sort of a plan and that if the thing that we wish to avoid or stop can prevent a a, a greater kind of uh, evil no i know i don't I, I don't believe in that kind of argument but it, it feels uh, like that that's kind of the the answer to that problem that kelly uh, puts forward and in fairness to the sequel i think it, it, it it's it's faithful in that sense and 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 that that that, that kind of seems seems to me more more what the movie is about than anything else. Where it's kind of interesting that you have a an American flag kind of like um, uh, well everywhere recurring throughout. Like, yeah. Which, which we, we and I wonder kind of like how mu- how much how much of the movie is about that. And I I, I, I think re- re- religion can kind of maybe be misleading as well because obviously it, it, it it's a movie that's very kind of cynical about organized religion but the idea of kind of spirituality and belief yes and 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 that kind of um but metaphysics that it that it that it's not a um a miraculous or mysterious worldview that it's something that has a a, a kind of a a logic and a coherence to it I did. You mentioned the American flag stuff because this is something that I really struck me on rewatching this from the vantage point of 2022. Right. Which is the extent to which, like, the whole PTA culture war stuff that's happening in the movie feels a lot stronger, or you know, as an adult who's probably aware of more stuff, feels more biting to me now than it did when I watched it in the, in the 2000s, where you have this whole big thing about like banning books in schools and firing teachers for having them teach for you know teaching things that you know kids that parents object to their kids learning about the stuff that bernice kind of mentioned earlier on which i thought was kind of a nice setup for this which is the difference between depiction and endorsement Mm. um and that like i find that's that stuff has aged really interesting because it does feel like it's a snapshot of the american culture war in a way that you don't always see in movies like this particularly not around this time where it's not the central focus of the movie but it's also part of the thematic focus of the movie is that fair to say joey or bernice or i think as well considering it's got so much worse in the past 20 years is what's really scary because i felt the same way it hit me a completely different way as an adult but i was thinking when i was watching it oh my god this is like a microcosm 
And now it's everywhere because this is just, you know, it's just in the school and it's sort of confined to that environment and these people who think they have power. But now it's everywhere. It's on Fox News. It's in the White House. And it's people pushing their agenda very, very hard and getting away with it, too. But it's it's not just in, even in the film, I'd argue it's not just in the school because like we first meet Jim Cunningham on the golf course and he's out golfing with like Eddie Darko, for example, and he's part of this as well. Oh, yeah, that's you have true. things like the like the way in which like uh, Kitty Farmer played by Beth Grant kind of like shames um, Elizabeth, sorry, shames Samantha, sorry, shames Rose as a mother. Um, and you have this kind of like the idea that it's just part of like the culture and the ambience. And again, other things that have aged uncomfortably um in this is like the conspiratorial stuff where it's like oh he's he's being framed this this man who's been caught doing terrible 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 things um he's an innocent victim um he's actually been framed it's a conspiracy that's being set up to drag his name kind of through the mud and the way in which you have the kind of rallying around like the the casting of patrick swayze as jim jim cummingham here it's a very small role Mm. um but it works really well on so many levels because it's a very effective character archetype and it's using an icon of 80s cinema in a way that is genuinely transgressive like we joke on the podcast but i'm surprised he wasn't played by kevin bacon Mm -hmm. um kevin Kevin, bacon is the only actor who may yeah the kevin bacon has already like had that done to him you know where where he he can't help now but be a victim (laughs) where like if he wanted to be like i mean sorry that he can kind of come back to will and grace and be known as kind of like the heartthrob from footloose but that most people now kind of see him as like that guy from sleeper or or the hollow man the woodsman whatever yeah yeah. but yeah you know that patrick swayze wore all his own clothes those are his own clothes which is kind of amazing um to save the the movie like its wardrobe budget which is quite impressive like 80s clothes don't they i wonder wonder if if they're like stuff that he's kept that they hadn't worn for many years or does he just dress like that all the time yeah maybe that's (laughs) his style we don't know (laughs) it's like so this movie's set in 2001 right that's where that's where we're set because do do I need to do my own frosted peaks? But <laughs> um, uh, the studio did try to convince Kelly to set it in the present day because eighties nostalgia wasn't as big back then because it was only like twelve years ago. And it's kind of interesting to watch this in the era of Stranger Things and go. Mm. There was a time where the studio was like, "No, just set it in the present day because it'll be cheaper." Also, Bernice mentioned it earlier on, but worth shouting out. Like, there's a, a shot of Mary McDonnell reading it in October nineteen eighty eight. The recent cinematic adaptation of It opens in October 1988, wow. which I thought was a nice, That's nice good. bit of symmetry there. <laughs> Can I say in a 9-11 coincidence, um, Donnie's mother, Rose, is played by Mary McDonnell, who became even more famous as the president in Battlestar Galactica, which is one of the major American pop culture responses to 9-11. Sorry, there you go. Wow. I just think it's a nice connection. Like, there's a whole bunch of, like, the casting in this movie, and obviously, like, that's a role that McDonald will go on to play, but the casting in this is really clever and really well done. I mean, we mentioned, like, the casting of Swayze, who's an 80s icon. We already mentioned the casting of, say, Barrymore as well. But, like, Donnie's therapist, uh, Dr. Thurman, is played by Catherine Ross. And I'm fairly sure that Bernice probably recognizes Catherine Ross from uh, kind of, like, her big, iconic kind of horror role. Am I setting you up here? Stepford Wives, 1975. Yes. yes. <laughs> Which again is another one of those kind of suburban films and so kind of plays up and sets up that idea of kind of the movie like being what it is, which is it's kind of, I think, like again, 
very clever and very assured for what is effectively somebody's first movie. Like, it's it's a remarkably confident piece of filmmaking and casting. Um, in terms of, of other stuff to talk about, I mean, it is worth noting, like, the younger cast as well. This is notably, I think, Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen. Yes. Yeah. yeah. His first line in a theatrically released film is, I like your boobs, which feels like an oddly appropriate <laughs> yeah, prescient. Uh, like introduction to Seth Rogen um, <laughs> as as a future kind of key player in American cinema. Um, but it also features like, again, fantastic cast as well. You've got like Jenna Malone in there as well. She'd been a child actor. She'd done things like the uh, Sam Raimi baseball movie for the love of the game. <laughs> um, but she'd been like a child actor who'd been around. But like, and I, I, what happened to her career? Like, I, I don't know what happened to her because I see her as like a Kristen Stewart or like a Shailene Woodley. She's been in some and I of can't those think of... kind of YA movies, though, like, like which have done well. Like, the, uh, like what? Was it Hunger Games? I think she was in a couple of those. Yeah, she was like major. No, that's not her. Is that not Shailene? Is that not Shailene? No, sorry, I'm thinking no, of the. I'm thinking no, she, of the Virgin. Sorry. Yeah, she she does have a small role as Joanna Mason in the Hunger Games. Uh, one of my favorite. Um, California Gothic films, uh, Neo, The Neon Demon. She's a great role in that. Oh, she is in The Neon Demon. I was thinking, I was trying to think what I'd seen her in recently. But I mean, but I just, I feel like she should have had a bigger career because I do think she's in that kind of same space that they're in. I'd agree with that. Yeah. They, 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 you know, like she's great. I mean, not to, not to derail the podcast as mentioning this filmmaker all but must, but yes, unfortunately, she was a victim of Sucker Punch, oh. where you have like Zack Snyder's 2011 film that was supposed to be a coming out kind of like, these are all movie stars now for like Emily Browning, Abby Cornish, Denim Malone, Vanessa Huggins, Jamie Chung. It was supposed to be like they're big, these people, these young women can anchor a blockbuster. Oh, God. And it kind of sinks like a stone. And to be fair, you could also argue that it does that for the male cast and that it takes Oscar Isaac another, you know, six, seven years to show up. Mm. John Hamm has to go to television to kind of figure out what he's going to do. But yeah, like Sucker Punch is kind of the rock, I think, on which kind of Jenna Malone gets kind of like crushed. Um, I was looking for a better metaphor. Well, apropos of Sucker Punch. It's one of only about two films that I've actually chucked out a window of the DVD. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sorry that it was as rough for the cast as it was for the audience to watch it. Yeah, very sad. You, you threw it out the window and you were what like... What was the other one? <laughs> no, I was thinking like you, 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 you can't do any more harm. You throw it out. It just cuts a bird. Take it out of your life. The other, the other one is a Serbian <laughs> film. So that gives you a clue oh, okay, yeah. okay. as to how strongly I feel about Sucker Punch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Agreed. I was about to say I'm feeling bad for whatever movies bunched with Sucker Punch, but now I feel bad for Sucker Punch. So um, <laughs> yeah. So in in terms of kind of other stuff, just about uh, Donnie Darko, um, like Joey, like mm. is there anything you want to say about the movie? Anything kind of jumps out at you? Well, terms? first of all, there are two people from iCarly in it, so that was very exciting. I noticed that on rewatch. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jerry Trainer is. Jerry Trainer's with Ashley Tisdale, a young Ashley Tisdale, yeah. which is crazy. And then the um, one of the mean teachers is at the beginning as well as some sort of like fed or something. Um, so that was very exciting as a lifelong iCarly fan. The new one's even better because it has Lucy Mosley. But yeah, something I noticed this time is it's kind of a weird Final Destination vibe where except that he's n he's not trying to escape it, I guess, which is strange. But that's the like the big thing that struck me this time was it's weird parallels with Final Destination, which I love. Um, and also, <laughs> they really make the Evil Dead look scary. They make that look like such a scary film, but she sleeps the whole way through it. 
<laughs> like, I guess when I watched it as a teenager, I wasn't as familiar with the Evil Dead. And now when I look at it, I'm like, what? She's asleep the whole time? She sleeps at the very beginning. Yeah. It, it came out in 81 as well. This is like a revival that they're showing. Must be, yeah. Mm. E- Evil Dead 2 was out at that point. But I mean, that screening was sold out, so they had to go and see Evil Dead, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, you know the reason why Evil Dead is there? It's because they didn't have any money left in the budget to pay for a movie on screen. Ah. And Sam Raimi was just like, here, you can show the Evil Dead. Like, you can do it for free because you seem like a nice man. Aww. Um which is kind of like it's one of those nice like indie filmmakers supporting indie filmmakers kind of thing, which is it's very, very cool. But like, uh, you know, I kind of I like that. And I like that even like even when he's doing that, you get things like the image of the clock, which is re- reminding you of the image of the clock earlier in the film mm. where you have like Mr. Darko kind of falling asleep. And so you have like the contrast between the two. And again, the kind of the idea of the hole in the screen and again, this is something that only really comes out in the director's cut, which again has a lot of time travel nonsense in it and a lot of text you have to read, which is very surprising. In some ways, it could perhaps prefigure S. Darko, but we'll come back to that. But like, <laughs> there's a subplot in the director's cut, which I quite like, where the teacher played by Drew Barrymore, after being told that she can't teach Graham Greene anymore, she decides to avenge herself by teaching Watership Down instead. Um, and they have like a big discussion in class about what it is. And Donnie has this big argument at how he doesn't, he, why should he care about animals? Why does he care about rabbits? It's, they're not people. They don't have the same urges that people have. They don't feel the same way people do. Why does the movie expect him to feel any sense of empathy or sympathy for them. Um, And that turns out to be like a point of friction between himself and kind of Jenna Malone's character, which sets up her coming back um, at the Halloween party, just, you know, being emotionally distressed because obviously her mother's disappeared. Um, But you have like this idea that having to explain to him that movies are not literal things. What you are seeing on screen is not a literal documentary. It's not gossip about imaginary people that the rabbits represent things and their ideas created by the author and their characters and your ability to invest in them extends empathy. And I like the idea that you get that again with the Evil Dead on screen where you have the portal opening and the idea that the screen becomes kind of a portal. And again, it's very... Some might argue, given the direction of Kelly's career after this, it's possible to disappear up various parts of your own anatomy Mm -hmm. uh, doing that sort of thing. But you have this idea of, yeah, the idea that it doesn't have to mean something literally. Because I guess this is kind of like something I wanted to ask you both about Donnie Darko, which is like, does the movie make sense in a linear A, B, C plotting kind of way? And does that matter at all? Uh, And I guess maybe for the prosecution... Uh, Joey, <laughs> does the movie make sense and, and does it matter? Uh, I don't think it really holds up to scrutiny, but I don't think it matters because I think it's more of a mood piece. I don't like, you know, with Tenet, which is funny, obviously, because we've been talking about Christopher Nolan, he fell into the trap of over explaining it and then it just completely fell apart. Now, I know you're saying in the director's cut, he kind of Kelly kind of falls victim to the same thing. But at least here, he doesn't over explain it. We get a little bit. And if you sit there and you think about it, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and I, I do have a feeling at the end where I'm like, why don't you just not go into your bedroom and then you wouldn't die? It's like it's like that moment in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre where they wheel Franklin over to Leatherface and then just run away where, you know, you could just wheel him away. But I mean, people, I guess they hate Franklin. That's what I always thought. Um, but no, if I'm 
if I'm being honest, I don't think it matters because I do think it's more about the mood. And I think, as you guys have all said, there, there's so much more going on underneath the surface that the time travel el- travel element doesn't really matter that much. And it's so funny because I was watching Pretty Little Liars' original Sin, which is great. And they had a Donnie Darko reference. Someone was dressed up as Donnie Darko at a Halloween party, which I thought was another kind of meta layer. So it still has an impact and people still think it's important and think it works. So in the grand scheme of things, no, it doesn't make sense, but I don't think it matters that it doesn't make sense. So I'd, I'd argue for the defense that the, um, Donnie Darko isn't trying to survive. Really? He, he, yeah, he knows that they... No, uh, I know he, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> I know he's not trying to survive. I'm saying he doesn't have to kill himself. <laughs> that, 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 that he does. From, 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 from being drawn away um, from that universe, a, a tangent universe has infected the, the kind of universe prime, as it were. And that, 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 that in order to save, I wanted to say Jenna. <laughs> Um, that's not the character's <laughs> name. That's the actor. What is um, her name? I feel bad. What is her name? Uh, Gretchen. 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 Of course. Thank you. Of course, it's Gretchen Ross. Of course, it was Gretchen. Um, <laughs> um, Tip of my tongue. To save, to save his mother and his sister. Um, as well. I just, I have to say, I don't, I don't really buy that because in the beginning, he's, I think he's so horrible to his parents. Like he's calling his mother a bitch and stuff, and it's, I don't really buy that at all. Oh, yeah, but I, they, I, I don't buy I understand feels, yeah. what they're doing. Yes, and I understand that they're setting it up that he's making some kind of sacrifice, but I just don't buy it. But But you'd agree that it makes sense though, in those terms. But do you think he changes and grows? Like, like again, like at the risk of I being like a that like, scene though where he calls his mother a bitch, there's a, a very short sort of close up of his face as the door closes and the mother's upset and kind of moves away, and you see in his face I think it's quite good acting by Gyllenhaal at a young age. You can see that he he sort of like he immediately kind of he regrets what he's done. Yeah, you yeah. know, and I, I do think there is a I think particularly in the dinner table scene, it's immediately established that this is a very warm kind of funny family. You know, so I don't know. I, to me, I mean, I get incredibly bored whenever incredibly technical time travel <laughs> stuff yeah. gets explained. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a death knell. It is. It is a death knell. I despise Tenant apart from the fact that I could not hear any of the film. Uh, it's very glossy, you know, uh, just completely overhyped and just, yeah, anyway. But first film I saw in the cinema for six months after COVID and the biggest disappointment at the cinema. But long story short, I think it makes sense emotionally, um, which I think is the important thing. I don't think that the that the trappings are actually all that important. If you're into that side of things, and clearly Kelly's into that side of things, <laughs> fair enough. We'll be talking about the the... I put it in, in quotation marks, the sequel next week. And I think one of the many things wrong with that film is that it very earnestly tries to get into the ins and outs of incredibly convoluted, um, uh, timey-wimey stuff. I, I shouldn't I hate quoting Doctor Who because I really dislike Doctor Who, but that's what it is. Um, but it does all that at the expense of characterization and actually caring about anyone in the film. Whereas for me personally, I really cared about people in this film. I liked them as a family. And uh, I felt genuinely very sad for the Darkers at the end. I mean, I, the ending of the film, I think, is genuinely really poignant and affecting and, and well handled um, by, by my sort of uh, take on it. So yeah. I kind of, I kind of, I liked everyone or cared about everyone but him. That was my big problem with it. Was I was just like, I was like, get to the end so this kid can die. Enough with this kid. Like, 
What I really want to do is follow his younger sister on an adventure somewhere like Yuda. Yeah. That's exactly what I want. Um, in the but, if you, but you know what's so funny as well when we're talking about like 20 years on? I remember the trailer for this movie and that line where he says, oh, your dad has emotional problems. I do too. What kind does he have? Ha ha ha. That was in the trailer and it marketed it as a very different kind of film right. because that's not what the film is. Because the mental health problems are, they are dealt with very well. But that kind of made the made the case for it as this like quippy sort of like fun escapade and it just isn't because it is very serious. Where it's a meet cute. I know. I know. It was immediately followed by, yeah, it's, it's dad and my mother. I'm not saying I dislike the line. Dad. I'm saying the line in the trailer made it seem like a different film. Yeah. But I get why he, no, I get why he does it because he's awkward. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like out of context. I mean, this gets at something I think Bernice kind of alluded to earlier, which is interesting to unpack and think about and kind of uncomfortable and kind of in in the way that I like movies to be uncomfortable, which is the idea that like this looks like, again, inspired by Columbine. Kelly talked about how Columbine was on his mind when he, he wrote it. And they said like he said like one of the terrible one of the most difficult things in selling this movie was it's a scene where a it's a movie where a second a high school kid like finds his parents gun and then fires it at the end of the film and there's something kind of interesting and i think bernice kind of alluded to it earlier and i don't want to put this on her uh in case it wasn't what she was suggesting at all <laughs> but where you're watching it and it's like you, the first time you watch it it's like he's going to do something terrible. He's going to do something horrific. It's, we need to talk about Donnie, basically. Mm -hmm. And what it ends up being is, instead of doing that, he accepts self-annihilation almost. He kind of like lets himself, again, the Christ metaphor, but be martyred or be annihilated, be wiped out and erased in order to prevent this terrible thing from happening. Um, And again, like in the universe of the film, it's all this nonsense about tangent universes, but it's really he fires a gun, he murders somebody and Gretchen dies as a result of his actions. And all this sort of stuff happens because he did something terrible and he takes that on himself and decides to wipe himself out. And I think there's something really affecting in the fact that like the closing shot of the movie is Gretchen cycling by having just moved to town like matching eyes with like Rose mm. uh, the two of them sharing a moment kind of having never met never crossed paths waving at one another and the small like little boy standing next to them waving as well and the idea that these people's lives are different now as a result of this because he's gone because that connecting tether's gone but he won't do the stuff that he did in, in the universe that he didn't want to do. Yeah, I, I mean, it's literally about him sacrificing himself, but it's figuratively about him accepting his fate or that, 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 that things kind of like this happen. What happened happened could not have happened any other way because we are alive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That the, to quote the Matrix Revolutions <laughs> from just two years later, there was clearly something in the water uh, at the end of the nineties. Absolutely, yeah, um, and like I, I don't kind of um, whether or not I subscribe to like some of the metaphysics of it. Like I, I, I <laughs> what Bernie said, I, I thought very funny as well because it, it is, it is true that this sort of stuff is. Um, it, like I suspect that I like 
it's kind of fun, but it, it reminds me of um there's a kind of an improv science fiction podcast called Mission to Zix, and they did a time travel episode. And, and there's like one character in this, he's kind of like, this doesn't make any sense. And they're explaining it to him. And he's like, I hate this. I hate this. Why are we doing this? Let's never do this again. I can't stand like all of this um, nonsense. But yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I do. There, there are, by the way, like it's worth noting, Gyllenhaal in his performance apparently modeled uh, Donnie on Kelly. And apparently Kelly didn't realize this while they were shooting. Apparently when they wrapped up shooting, oh. uh, Gyllenhaal kind of walked up to him and said, by the way, what did you think of my impression? He's like, what impression? My impression of you. Wow. Um, and apparently he's like, well, now I recognize it. Um, but it, it's it's things like, you know, you have like Gyllenhaal saying, I think like when they're interviewing, like Gyllenhaal has said he'll come back and he'll do a Donnie Darko sequel with Richard Kelly whenever he asks, which seems like a bit of a stretch given how the movie ends. But I kind of admire that. But Gyllenhaal's always there to rave about working you've, with him. And he's like, you've seen Matrix. Yeah, resurrection. <laughs> um, what we really need is a rom-com uh with with kind of gretchen where she meets a later version of donnie um but like you kind of like he's talked about like, how is, like how does jake gillenhall how is he not aged <laughs> yeah how is, um but like they talk they say like you know kelly is a contradiction and gillenhall's response is like a contradiction would imply something that could be understood two things that would be a yin and yang that's not what richard kelly is I feel like he's out of the mind of John Hughes. He's a missing character from The Breakfast Club. And he kind of says, look, I'm a firm believer in the unconscious being the teller of some truth. And I feel Richard wrote the script very unconsciously. The issues that Donnie confronts are metaphors for things in Richard's life. They obviously resonate with him in a pretty intense way. I mean, there must be some stuff going on in Richard Kelly's mind. And Kelly's talked about how, like... The, the movie's inciting incident, um, what like prompted him to write it was like when he was a kid in Virginia, there was a story about a piece of ice, a block of ice falling off an airplane window and landing in a kid's bedroom uh, somewhere near him that went to school with him. And the kid obviously wasn't in the bedroom at the time, but he got thinking, well, what if the kid was? And then he got thinking about, well, what if it wasn't a block of ice? What if it was an engine? And apparently people like it was while they were filming it, the producers were like, it's not believable, Richard. Nobody's ever going to believe that a plane could, an engine could just fall off a plane. And apparently as they were filming that sequence, a KLM jet lost its engine on the uh, California beach, um, literally as they were shooting that sequence. So Kelly got to go, ah, ah, see, told you, can't happen, can't happen. Which is apparently why that stayed in the movie. They also found out after they paid $10,000 for the jet engine that they were going to use in the scene, that they only got one shot of dropping it on the set. Uh, because apparently it's <laughs> the level of damage that a ten thousand uh, dollar jet engine does to a film set. Uh, you can't reconstruct that when you're operating on a budget that they were. Well, um, presumably you 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 can take the engine out of the the um, you know that 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 it's encased, and you 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 just make make a set out of something really crappy, and then and then <laughs> like uh, let something lighter fall out like like the, the um i don't know yeah but they'd already spent the ten thousand dollars on the jet engine so it's like we can't not drop it on the set after doing they, that as yeah well. and it, um, they, i well i assume with that that they they sell like the um that part of the jet engine for relatively cheap knowing that you need to complete the set oh, you have to buy the rest of the jet yeah, yeah. 
It's an installment plan. That's how they get you hooked. Exactly. Once you bought four jet engines, you have to spend on the jet, it, right? It comes with um, a magazine. <laughs> but he's talking about how like people like say Grandma Death was apparently like based on a real old lady near where he grew up. And he said like the character of Jim Jim Cunningham, the kind of self-help guru, that was actually on his curriculum. He remembers having to attend those assemblies and hear those kind of things. So it's very much it is drawn from kind of Kelly's childhood in a way that is kind of interesting and kind of autobiographical in a way that reminds me a lot of when we talk about Lynch. Where it's like when you when you watch David Lynch movies, you're like, this makes no sense. This has to be a metaphor for something. And then Lynch will be like, no, no, I, I just remember this one time I saw giant uh, beetles and they were everywhere. They were just crawling everywhere. Giant beetles out of the floor. And it's like, OK, not mm-hmm. a metaphor. Something that actually happened to him that he has decided to put in the movie because he thought it was a cool image. That myth was denied hungry, hungry hippos. <laughs> <laughs> how did that make you feel andrew how did that make you feel? like I, I kind of it's <laughs> i like how how like horny the movie is like it's very much yeah it's very much about how donnie doesn't know how to process his like he's he's a young man coming of age and he's got all these hormones and he's very horny and frustrated and he doesn't know what to do about it and I kind of I, sorry. No, I was going to say it's very funny. The the the, the, the like the two moments that he, he wakes up from like hypnosis. One is like hands down his pants, and the other he's like in an embrace with the. He must be wondering <laughs> what did I do while I was yeah. asleep? Yeah, and also kind of like why was this allowed? Um, <laughs> Yeah, very bad parenting standards. I think that, like, I think he, like, I think Kelly has also said that, like, the Drew Barrymore teacher was based on some of his own English teachers, except none of them would have asked a young girl showing up to class to sit next to the boy she thinks is cutest. Um, I think when he's asked about her being fired, he's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, she did teach unapproved texts, but also I feel like if you ask girls to pick where they want to sit based on the boys they find cutest, you're probably, like, reasonable kind of grounds for firing. That is. That is the dream of the weird kid who can't get a girlfriend. It's like, well, if if they just didn't know about my personality, maybe they would like to be. <laughs> so, like I'm somebody who's come in and it's like carte blanche. Who is the, <laughs> and you're that. stuck with me now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> by the time we've walked home and you've realized what a terrible person i am or how unusual <laughs> i am you're kind of committed and in for the long haul uh, but bernice is there anything you want to talk about with donnie darko anything we haven't discussed or anything jumping out at you yeah um i was thinking about this because i'm teaching a course on the supernatural and uh this t- term for the first time and we're talking a lot about grief and the supernatural and how so much of supernatural horror revolves around the idea that something unspeakable happens within a family, particularly the death of a child. And that almost like creates almost like a rupture in, in, in sort of reality that allows a gateway for supernatural stuff to happen. It's a really classic setup you get in the likes of the Babadook and Pet Cemetery most famously. Yeah. And I couldn't help but think about, you know, um, particularly, unfortunately, many families will have experienced this where you have, you know, particularly the unexpected death of a young person is like a kind of rupture in the time space continuum almost. It's so unexpected. It's so sudden. Um, they're generally, you know, deaths and accidents, etc. And at the end of Donnie Darko, I think part of the reason why it resonates so much is that you get this sense of a of a family absolutely stunned and by this sort of act of random happenstance, except we've just watched the film and we know that this um, death has a kind of significance 
has an actual significance that it isn't just a random act that there is a kind of uh, uh, order Guiding purpose that is brought it about and I think there's something I don't think it's necessarily coherent and I'm not sure that what I'm trying to say here is necessarily coherent but I think I think that's maybe part of the reason why the film has had such a rich cultural afterlife afterwards I do think I do think there's something quite um, weirdly comforting about it the idea that you know Donnie hasn't just died in a kind of random random you know 40 and type of event but that it's an actual uh there's there's an element of kind of um, redemption and self-sacrifice there so that's one thing and finally I, I wanted to mention um beth grant who plays and um, yes kitty farmer yeah um she's just the most tremendous character actress she pops up here there and everywhere if um people are a fan of um your man he does hannibal brian fuller isn't it um, yes. she pops up in like brilliant cameo roles and things like Wonderfalls and various Brian Fuller um, TV shows um, but she's just tremendous and uh, she's a great cameo role in a classic episode of The Office The Dinner Party people might remember she's uh, Dwight's date and former babysitter mm-hmm. and the, the sparkle motion line which we have quite rightly it has been quoted at the outset here I think it was Andrew um, but, or was it yourself but um, I, I've, I'll always forget until I see the film again because you usually only see it in kind of meme format you know it's in text but when she says that line sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion it's done with it's, it's hilarious it's a very very funny moment but it's done with such genuine sort of desperation and hysteria and you get the sense that this wo- this woman's world is kind of collapsing and that the line itself is, of course, a gem. But there's a real kind of like commitment to the bit that I think is just typical of that yeah. actor. And um, it's just, I mean, just for that moment alone, I think this film deserves to be, you know, top 200 adjacent. So that's all I've got, got left to say. There you go. <laughs> We've given a lot of props to Mary McDonnell as, as Rose Darko and deservedly so. It is worth shouting out like Holmes Osborne, who secretly becomes like Kelly's inside man. He's the only actor, he's basically the Robert De Niro to his Martin Scorsese, uh, Mr. Eddie Darko. He appears in Southland Tales and The Box, uh, which is interesting for what is basically a journeyman actors from 90s television, where it's like you're either seeing him on Law and Order, The X-Files, or in like the weirdest, most nonsense movies you have ever seen. Um, so I think it's it's worth giving a shout out to Holmes Osborne for that. Um, he does spend most of Southland Tales wearing a very 2000s pair of sunglasses, which is fantastic. And yeah, I think I think you're you're kind of onto something there with the disruption of like space time. Like again, this is a very young man film, a very teenage boy film. I think Joey shouted out, and quite rightly so, where it's this kind of like very solipsistic kind of view of the universe, where oh, yeah. the end of reality itself is indistinguishable from my own reality. Where like yes. Donnie Darko passing away is tantamount to the fate of the universe itself where he is not just dealing with the stresses of being a teenage boy, he's also dealing with the collapse of reality and the world itself around him. Which, and, you know, I mean, I, I kind of, I understand the sense of that being melodrama and stuff like that, but like, as somebody who was a teenage boy, there's something kind of almost true about the feeling of that. Yeah. Where there is that sense of, like, when you're a teenage boy, everything is the end of the world. Everything does feel like reality itself is going to collapse in if something goes just a little bit wrong. Um, I kind of like that even if i understand the criticisms of it I think. And, and and the kind of sense of one's own importance yeah like that 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 he he is a christ-like figure as you said it is an easter movie like robocop obligatory robocop um, nice. and plenty of inappropriate smoking as well um i mean if samantha tells mom about it ariel's gonna go in the trash compactor 
Ariel is a very special unicorn. Yeah. By the way, Gyllenhaal would smoke between scenes. <laughs> would he? Well, I suppose he can. <laughs> like he he can't he can't um, legally buy alcohol um, at this point. Um, but it, but but he can smoke and like have a gun. <laughs> and <that's good> stuff. <laughs> like I mean, I I do I do love that it was like and and Jake doesn't smoke. That was the, that was the other observation. Like he'd he'd smoke between scenes and and Jake Jake just doesn't smoke. That was the kind of production. That was the vibe of the movie that we were making and the role that he was playing. Um, Joey Bernice, is there anything else you want to say? Anything we haven't discussed or anything jumping out for you guys? Um, no, I don't think so. Oh, although it can't it can't be overstated how much of a how much of a moment this was for Jake Gyllenhaal and how and how impactful it was. Like, even if you think about American Horror Story, the first series of that, when they have Evan Peters in the ghost makeup with the hood up walking through the school, because if this was made nowadays, he 100% would be a school shooter. That's just where it would go. That's just the time we live in. Um, but yeah, it's such, I mean, as you guys say, you can draw a direct line to, well, I think Nightcrawler. I think that's, you can definitely draw a direct line between mm. Donnie Darko and Nightcrawler and the kind of evil smile, like the way he twitches his face. It's just, so if nothing... I mean, nocturnal Animals, like yes. so much of Gyllenhaal's filmography is that, like Demolition is like, what if Donnie Darko was a middle-aged man in a middle-brow Oscar bait? Because he, he is a weirdo. Yeah. And I feel like when they tried to make him a blockbuster guy with like Prince of Persia and stuff, it just didn't come off because he's a weirdo. We know now he doesn't yes. shower. Do you think he smelled back then as well? Because he doesn't look smelly. He looks quite clean. I bet. But I don't know if he did smell. I bet he doesn't like, smell bad. That was that was why Jenna Malone didn't want to kiss him. That like it wasn't just That's exactly it wasn't just the chubby guy in the tracksuit who was watching. It's like no, I feel like it needs to be a special moment. Like after you've showered. Um. Yeah, I, we're outside and I can still smell you. I, I just can't, I can't. I think like other people will try like his regime, and results may vary. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, God, you know, they'll... imagine being that hot though that you don't have to you don't have to share. Like people will still sleep with you. Exactly. You know, Jake Gyllenhaal could probably soil himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <all right. laughs> um, yeah. I like, uh, by the way, that Joey describes it like as being so hot as if like he just purifies himself. It's like it's you don't have to shower. Well, it's just it just happens. It's... Well, if you believe the rumors like Jared Leto and Leonardo DiCaprio don't do anything in bed, they just lie there because they're so hot. They're like, well, you're going to do all the work. I'm Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm Jared Leto. So with him, it's just like, well, who cares? I stink. You're still going to have sex with me. I'm Jake Gyllenhaal. I, I, I didn't need to know that, but now I do. Um <laughs> I was just saying, obviously, with DiCaprio, the women are much younger and maybe more energetic. As oh, that's well. a good point, Bernice. That is a good point. Given his preferences. You know, he's, he's getting on a bit. He's probably like, I can't do much. You know, we, we should, could you maybe. We, we should acknowledge that, like, this, the year that Donnie Darko was released was the same month that, like, his favorite TV show premiered, 24. Um, wow. Oh, oh. All right. Never mind. That was a, was a joke about the age of his girlfriends. Anyway. <laughs> Ah, oh, I thought it was really his favorite no, show. No, his favorite show is Bloodlines, <laughs> uh, which I, I don't I know. I can't explain. There's oh. nothing. Yeah, that is seriously. I thought you had some trivia no, there. No, no it, the trivia <laughs> is that it's Bloodlines. Um, but, wow. Yeah. Was that a joke about Leonardo DiCaprio and like the, the, the age of women he dates? Yes, Andrew. Yeah, thank he, doesn't, thank you for that. he doesn't date anyone over 25. Thank you, Andrew. All right. Uh, more of those jokes. Um, 
Let's explain it more, yeah. like the director's coach. This is our director's yeah. coach. We've got little text appearing on screen explaining, was it the uh, manipulated living, the manipulated dead, um, the oh, tangent God. universe and the prime universe and all this. There will be a test <laughs> at the end of this. Go, going going, going back to what we said earlier about um, the puberty of it all, that's kind of like the, the what, what, are you, what are you wearing that stupid man suit for? Kind of thing and the ridiculousness of of kind of like growing and 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 of having this body mm. and of, of 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 kind of pretending to be a person mm. when when or pretending when, to be a man yeah, yeah 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 like it, not a boy a man you know yeah um, i'm a man man not a boy suit Sorry, I've got the song Werewolf Bar Mitzvah going through my head now, you know, boys becoming men. men but becoming... by the way, um, the, the Frank thing, by the way, that is apparently um, Kelly is not Ke- I love this. Kelly is unsure where the bunny came from. He's not sure whether it was a dream that he had or the fact that he really loved Watership Down as a kid. And that's how it filtered through. And apparently um, Frank the bunny is responsible for all of what followed in um, his career because Kelly has said... He didn't have to fight anybody as hard as he had to fight to get Frank in the movie. Because, like, everybody was like, the bunny's going to look stupid. Why Why you got a bunny? What's the point? Can't he be, like, a man in a skull costume or something scary or like that? And he's like, just trust me, trust me, trust me. And he designs the mask and he kind of, like, goes to costuming. They're like, it looks stupid. And he's like, no, no, no. When we do it with the lights and we shoot the scene. And the bunny shows up on set. They shoot the scene and everyone's like, wow, Richard Kelly was right. This is terrifying Mm. and he's like kelly's been like every time in my career after that moment where i did something where anybody was like but that's a stupid idea they immediately stop themselves and go but i thought the bunny was a stupid idea too let's hear him out um so that is how you end up with southland tales (laughs) (laughs) Uh, oh god i was gonna say about the, the bunny though it seems to me that there's a very obvious precedent in post-war film, which is um, a film I remember seeing as a kid, which is Jimmy Stewart's Harvey, about, I think in the original play, he's a raving alcoholic, um, and they tone it down a bit in the film, but he's a, he's has delusions of a six-foot-tall rabbit called Harvey. So, I mean, I would be surprised if that wasn't percolating around um, his consciousness maybe somewhere as well, you know? Like, the opening scene of, of kind of, like, uh, Donnie collapsed down is, like, from A Place in the Sun, which is another kind of, like, 1950s kind of film noir. He cited, like, The Graduate as an influence there as well. Like, again, we talked about this with, with Aronofsky. A lot of these, again, film studies graduates coming up and kind of, like, percolating this stuff. But anyway, I guess what I would really like to say about Frank is you, you can't put the bunny back in the box, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> oh, right. Well, oh, God. That was a long, long walk, but I got there eventually. Um, all right. Right. So what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests for recommendations. They can be related to the movie. They can be unrelated to the movie. Just something that brings you joy. Maybe something spooky. Maybe something scary related for the season that's in it. But to give Joey and Bernice a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Yeah, I'll, I'll recommend a couple of things. One is kind of related to the movie. Something I read recently that the movie, again, made me think about. When... We did, we did, we did an older movie a number of years ago. Um, I recommended uh, Brighton Rock because I was struggling to kind of recommend an older movie, and uh, it's 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 with with um, with, with Richard Attenborough, and it's very good. But I I I I more recently read 
or kind of sorry, I read the the listen to the audiobook, I should say, of uh, of Brighton Rock, and it relates to this movie because obviously of the 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 destructors, the the kind of short story that that uh, Drew Barrymore's character discusses, but it's also the the, the it um, the movie appears to take place in a in the Catholic school and and has kind of like I guess religious themes um and and that's uh, I, I i think what one of the kind of rich themes of brighton rock is the catholicism of this terrible um character a uh, pinky played by richard attenborough in the movie and his kind of um i guess medieval way of kind of thinking about things and it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a, a tremendous kind of dark kind of sad and profound and and and, and but also like really kind of like exciting and fun book uh, Brighton Rock and the other thing I'd recommend is is um, just something that I enjoyed um, that I finished recently was um, a, another John Le Carre book I'm very boring because I'm always recommending the same sort of thing. Carry on, Lakari. <laughs> but it's um, ab- ab- absolute friends. I think I like people who were born in the 30s who repeat the same tricks over and over again. So like Philip Glass, kind of like a lot of his stuff is kind of the same. <laughs> and, and you can kind of say, you can say the same about Lakari, I guess, as well. But it, it just makes me so happy. Yeah, I love that Philip Glass piece. Which one? All of them. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it, it's it's a story of two people. One a um, a a British person born in Pakistan, and the other uh, a sort of an anarchist who finds himself on the kind of like the east side of the 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 Iron Curtain. But about their enduring friendship. And I think a lot of Licare books kind of have that as as a theme. I think you have it in in I think a call for the dead as well, with Smiley's kind of um, forsaking a a, a a friendship, which which uh, for 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 political reasons, just broadly of kind of men being stupid and prioritizing the wrong things, you know, giving up their chances of happiness for like things like careers and country. So yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that and recommend it. People are into that kind of thing. Bernice, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Well, it might have come up in the show before, but um, I've had a really busy summer and uh, met a lot of my fellow Gothic scholars and they all kept recommending you need to watch Yellow Jackets. So I finally sat down and watched Yellow Jackets and went, hmm, for about four episodes. And then suddenly, now it's my new favorite thing. And uh, where, as to where Jenna Maloney, or what do you call her, Jenna, Mar- <laughs> Jenna, Jenna Malone? Jenna Malone might end up next. Yellow jackets. Every every sort of um, vaguely dark accented. Uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of character, um, uh, uh, character or uh, uh, actress from nineteen nineties and early two thousand cinema. They're all popping up at it. Melanie Linsky, you know, best known for Heavenly Creatures. Juliette Lewis from numerous things. Christina Ricci. Christina Ricci. Mm-hmm. A scene-stealing a scene character called Misty, who's kind of a delightful sociopath. It's just tremendous. It's 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 not only very, very funny, it's actually a really good horror program. I don't want to say too much about it. It's about um, a 1990s uh, soccer t- female soccer team who have a plane crash in the Canadian wilderness and have to try and survive for 19 months. And it intercuts between flashbacks to the 90s and to the women who are then played by the... 
uh, sort of uh, uh, 90 screen queens almost like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so go to the, sort of the younger versions of the selves. It's just tremendous. Um, I was skeptical, skeptical because when people um, recommend stuff to me so much, I tend to think, no, this is why I didn't see trains spanning for about a decade. <laughs> um, it's just brilliant. Um, and it's also very, very funny. And uh, I think it actually uh, intersects with some of the stuff we've talked about to do with Donnie Darko a little bit. Actually. I mean, it, you did just mention it literally has a plane dropping out of the sky. <laughs> it, yeah, it does. But it's also, um, I think, a show about adolescence and, and trauma. And um, it's just it's a gem of a program and it's great to see it getting such a good reaction. So there you go. Yellow Jackets unreservedly endorsed by me. If <laughs> and Joey, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? I'm going to say Pretty Little Liars Original Sin because I mentioned it while we were talking about Donnie Darko. It has kind of like a tie into that movie. And I just, I mean, I'm a sucker for slashers anyway. And it's such a good slasher and a surprisingly good slasher as well because the original show kind of went on too long. It kind of ran out of steam quite quickly, a bit like Lost, where you feel like, oh, it should have been much shorter. Um, but it's it's a great killer. It's a compelling mystery the characters are all really great, really well drawn. And it's a great show about ad- adolescence as well and about, you know, kind of the female body betraying us. There's, you know, a, quite a strong sexual assault storyline and then one character is pregnant for most of it. Um, but it's it's really, really solid. I don't, a part of me kind of hopes they don't do a second season, even though they've sort of teed it up that they're going to because it's so great as it is. But how it is nowadays, I'm sure they will do a second season. But yeah, if you're looking for a good slasher or a good show about adolescence, definitely, definitely check that one out. Um, in terms of, of recommendations uh, for myself, um, again, Holmes Osborne is apparently the man of the hour. Let him enjoy it while <laughs> he can. Um, he popped up on the X-Files and Millennium uh, when I was a kid. I would recommend Millennium. Uh, it's an underrated, underseen Chris Carter TV show. The second half of the first season and the entire second season are some of the best episodic television I've ever seen. Maybe don't watch the first half of the first season or the third season and you'll be grand. Uh, <laughs> but it is, it ties back into that whole Donnie Darko Millennium kind of thing where it's the end of the world and the idea that the apocalypse is something that ever the, the line that Johnny has sorry Donnie has here which is we all die alone um the idea that the end of the world is something that you experience kind of personally rather than socially or collectively and what that means in the era of bowling alone uh but it, it's a show that I, I absolutely love and would wholeheartedly recommend particularly the second season overseen by uh Glenn Morgan and James Wong uh, I think that's phenomenal and very very briefly um I guess just <sighs> I, for the purposes of doing this, I watched all of Kelly's filmography. It is only three films. <laughs> uh, there are two alternate cuts of two of those three films, so it's five films in total. Um, I would hesitate to call either The Box or Southland Tales good in any meaningful sense, uh, but I do think that they are very rich texts um i think there's a lot going on in them i think they're very interesting very esoteric and very personal and at a time where major studio productions and actors working in major studio productions feel very conservative and very safe um watching those movies and rewatching the box which is a very silly very stupid movie that makes absolutely no sense on any level whatsoever but goes it commits to what it's doing unreservedly um, it James Marsden and Cameron Diaz like really go for it in a way that A-list actors don't do. 
Um, and it has like, again, a weirdly personal aspect to it where the two victims in this Richard Matheson short story are based on the writer and director's parents for reasons. Um, <laughs> but it, it does mean that it feels more esoteric, more personal, more weird. They're not great films. I'm not sure they're even good films. In fact, I'm fairly sure Southland Tales is a bad film. Um, but I found myself quite enjoying watching them just for the oddness of them. So that's my very guarded, very qualified recommendation. And an actual recommendation um, because it's 25 years old uh, and it's a horror movie and we're coming up on Halloween. Um, the Event Horizon, uh, Paul W.S. Anderson's uh, film, probably his best film. What if Alien, but also The Exorcist. Um, mm-hmm. I rewatched it recently, quite enjoyed it. So I would recommend that. All right, then. So if listeners are looking for a bit more Joey, a bit more Bernice in their lives, where can they find you? What you at? So Joey, where you at? What you up to? I'm on Twitter at JoeyLDG. You get all my stuff on there. And also right. ramblings, obviously. And Bernice, I believe you haven't mentioned it on the show, but I think I read in the notes that you may have a book coming out. Huh. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The California Gothic in fi- popular or in fiction and film. I got the own t- my title of my own book wrong, which I do regularly. I, I do that too. Now, now I'd, uh, it's only ninety pounds sterling. So if you're an independently wealthy individual who likes to, you it's know, like half a month's energy bill. It's fine. It's like fifty percent of your September energy bill. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, the good thing is I get all of that in royalties, so that it, it does make it all worthwhile. Um, but yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter at Murph Gothic, and I'm also an academic type. So, um, yeah, I've written a fair bit about horror and gothic from an American perspective. Um, so. And I, I would recommend I've cited your work on the suburban gothic as well, actually. Um, so it's, it's, Thank it's, you it's very good, much. good stuff. Um, all right, then. We'll be back next week. Uh, Joey and Bernice will be joining us to talk about the unofficial sequel to Donnie Darko, S. Darko. Um, first of all, before we do that, it's probably going to be a short episode. So just be prepared next week. Also, <laughs> listeners... <laughs> Listeners, I would recommend waiting until the episode before watching the movie, not to hedge any recommendations that I know may or may not be coming. But I would maybe if you are on the fence, don't feel like you have to watch the movie until (laughs) you hear whether or not we tell you whether you should watch the movie. That's the only advice that I would give breaking the usual format of the show. Um, All right. Take care. We'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. See you next week, everyone. <laughs> Bye. See you later. Very, very, very